My fellow Estorians, I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredis. A Dance with Dragons is the longest of the books so far, and it's also the darkest and least understood, thanks to being the most recent. It's the culmination also, so far, of George's style, honed over the course of all the prior books and the rest of his career. It has the extended length of A Storm of Swords, the expanded pacing of A Feast for Crows. It brings POVs together like a clash of kings and has the setup of A Game of Thrones. If you're watching live, you can feel free to ask live questions. You can also send questions and comments or thoughts or anything you want to say to us ahead of time by joining us on one of our social media outlets. Facebook is the largest of our groups. Of course, Facebook is just the biggest, so that makes sense. It's also the one we built the first, built first, so it's been around the longest. If you don't want to be on Facebook, we've got a much more focused version of discussion over on Flick. We discuss each chapter post by post, and there is nothing else discussed whatsoever. All the posts are about the chapters and the occasional post about one of our scripted episodes. Discord is for a wide variety of discussions, not just what we're doing here, but random chats about lots of stuff. Slack is a bit similar, but for patrons only. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Ugh. Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Check out the Isle of Faces podcast. That's Joe Buckley's show. He calls it Scraps and Scrolls when he's in tandem with Valar Reredis. He's got occasionally some other episodes over there as well that aren't Valar Reredis, but his thoughts on Valar Reredis are invaluable. You'll find them not only in his show, but here in our notes as well. Same goes for Nina Friel. Find her over on Good Queen Alley on Tumblr. Lots of great thoughts on these chapters and a very large variety of other topics. Today, we have Reek 2. The gang goes to Moat Kalem, a.k.a. 63 Flayed Iron Man. John 5, an onion or an apple, a.k.a. 63 Wildling Recruits. On Tyr- the wall? <laughs> Tyrion 6, the one with lots of Sivas, a.k.a. a northern bear and Selhoris. And Daenerys 4, better the butcher than the meat, a.k.a. To tie a Miranese knot or not. Tyrion and Theon both get drunk for the first time in a long while. I guess we can do better than that for themes and parallels. You may have noticed the number 63 used twice there. You're probably curious about that unless you already know why. George R. Martin dropped several number 63s as Easter eggs throughout the book. There are more coming. We'll point them out when we get there. The reason for this 
is that he himself was 63 years old when this book came out. We had a funny discussion about this offline. What, did he put an X in there until the book was published? It's like, well, first it was 58, then it was 59, then it was, then when the book was actually published, okay, go back in and make all those 63 because the book's actually done now. There's a lot of convincing in this set of chapters. Danny's chapters feature entreaties constantly because, well, that's just the way of things when you're trying to rule a conquered city. But this time, it's particularly focused on the marriage being the center of all that, with both the Green Grace and Hisdar making very convincing arguments. Theon has to convince the Ironborn to leave their posts. John has to convince Bowen Marsh and company to accept free folk as allies, and vice versa. Tyrion convinces Aegon of a huge number of things, in part leading to that huge change of plans, then convinces Halden to let him go to a brothel because he convinced himself he needs that, which, well, he's wrong about that. In pretty much all of these cases, there are these persuasive arguments, but it would have been better for the person being convinced if they had not listened to the person doing the convincing. Theon conned the Ironborn into being flayed instead of fighting to the death. Tyrion conned himself and Aegon in several ways. Between the Green Grace and Hisdar and the Sons of the Harpy, there's lots of conning of Daenerys going on in Marine as well. Foul things are everywhere in these chapters. At Moat Kaelin, there's rotting corpses, poisons, bogs, stenches, flaying, and some of the worst people in the series. The Wall suffers from food shortages, dead children, and a lot of hatred. Tyrion sinks to a new low in Selhoris with a truly foul self-loathing and lack of empathy for sufferings that he actually recognizes. He's aware of the sufferings and just still doesn't have any empathy, partly because he doesn't even have empathy for himself. And now Grayscale is in the mix, and that's all certainly foul is a fair description of that. Selhoris itself is pretty foul, ruled by Volantis, an even fouler place in a swamp, a culture ready to implode, so corrupt it's tangible. This is not exactly new for Daenerys and Marine either. She's been dealing with some of the worst people in the world too, a whole culture ruled by them. I mean, slavers, what is worse than that? Not much, if anything. She's coming to terms with having to be more like them to rule them, which we've talked about being a dangerous, slippery slope, but what else can she do? Marrying Hisdar would at least give the appearance that she's becoming more like them. Hidden identities are a big part of this book overall. We talked about that at the beginning. It's going to continue to pop up from time to time. It's never a surprise when it does, but today we get an extra big dose. Daenerys doesn't know who the Harpy is, nor can readers be 100% certain themselves at this point, though we've got a pretty confident guess that we'll talk about. The Shy Maid is a treasure trove of hidden identities, most of which we've been through already, but this time it's still going. Tyrion is still wondering who Lamor is. Ditto, by the way. <laughs> we, I think there's a lot of dittos on that one. Who the heck is Lamar? John himself is in quite the conundrum with threats all around. He seeks to make some of them into allies. He's also trying to fill in for all the lack of expertise the Night's Watch is faced with. He's trying to be something he's not. For a while, he tries to do what Sam was doing for him, and he's just no Sam. And that's how his chapter starts. But it's Theon with the oddest inversion of all. He's taking the role of himself. Now that's meta. Reek 2. The gang goes to Moat Kalen, aka 63 Flayed Iron Man. It's not the first time, but no one was flayed. Not one. <laughs> Meaning last time we went to Moat Kalen, there wasn't a single flaying. So, hmm. 
This chapter has a lot more of that overpowering sensory description I've been going on and on about since the beginning of this book. The gross machine is turned up to 10 or 11 on this one, whatever the maximum setting is. The swamp is unpleasant, but that's nothing compared to all the rotting corpses inside and out, the foul cellars filled with water and creatures, the smell of the guard's breath when he pulls Theon close and puts a dagger to his throat, the death of Ralph Kenning is about as bad as it gets. People retch in the story, and maybe a few readers did too. Theon gets drunk and sleeps with dogs and throws up all over himself, and they lick it up, and then there's the 63 flayed Iron Man. Really, I could go on, but uh, you, you read the chapter, you get it. It's full of foulness. And, and who comes in triumphant amidst all this foulness? Who rides in like the, the new leader? Because he is the new leader. Well, it's the Boltons and their in-laws, the phrase. The worst people riding into this worst environment. It's, it's rather fitting. The first line is, They gave him a horse and a banner, a soft woolen doublet and a warm fur cloak, and set him loose. It's chilling to see how he reacts to thinking of himself. He's constantly correcting himself as that other man because he's conditioned by massive suffering. The thought of himself as Theon causes pain to resurface, both emotional and potentially physical as well. Yet at the same time, that's who they want him to be. Ramsey stripped that identity away from him and now is telling him, hey, you need to be that guy again. It's, it's a bit confusing, isn't it? He's not allowed to be himself. So he's got to impersonate himself, right? Mm. The beginning, Joe writes, Theon 1 was a soul whose highlight was catching a rat and eating it alive. But now he's been given a horse, a banner, clothes that give him comfort. It's not like he's doing well, but it's a huge improvement. And it's part of why he starts to regain his own identity. Even as he's telling himself that's not who he is. It sneaks in. He thinks of himself as I was here or when I was here last. And it, as often as he corrects himself, it continues to happen. I don't think Ramsey understands how much of a restorative this is. He, he sort of gets it. He tells Theon, you know, you're still not Theon. You're still, you know, not this person, even though you're pretending. But the memories here are so deep for Theon. He was with Rob here. He rode next to Rob, Rob's army, Rob's war. It was really important. He felt a part of something big. He felt like a, more like a Stark than he ever has. And we know he wanted to be one. And so that is a lot of pathos to be reliving right here because it's very much Theon's pathos. And if he's feeling those emotions, then they must be his because those were very personal. So it's just a really a big knot. It's the Theonese knot. Hmm. He, he tries to not think about the past, but he can't do that. It's just too powerful. So he, can, he tries to disassociate, but the disassociation is breaking down. Joe notices the same thing. He thinks I, not he. It's like the Wormways and the Sorrows and Blood Raven's Cave. Some of that feel is captured here as well. The winding, narrow past, the extreme age of the place, the way nature has taken over the interior of the buildings, and of course, the bodies everywhere. It's awful. Like, there's so much around Theon here that's distracting and nasty and gross, but he's just really focused on this internal story of, of identity. And that's really something because there's so much distracting around and, and his own life is threatened. The so-called bog devils are as shifty and hard to catch as the children of the forest, while the slightest touch of their arrows can mean certain death. So it's a little similar to the stone man giving grayscale just at a touch. 
Like in Tyrion's Fog chapter, George relies on the feeling of being watched and monsters in the dark to incite this sort of horror atmosphere. A lot of you all commented on the various horror authors or genres or, or writers or movies that this reminded you of. And there's a very wide variety. It's, it's really neat because there, George, I think, borrows from a lot of different traditions to make the scene work. And it works quite well, as gross as it is. So there's these Kranich men hunting the Ironborn, shooting their arrows. But there's also this feel of the children of the forest there. And of course, he's thinking of the ghosts of the army he was once part of. Nina says it's one of the most atmospheric in the series with this, the way the setting and the mood go so well together. Moat Kalen is just so ancient. It's, it's a place out of time. It doesn't make sense almost. I mean, there's a thing called the Children's Tower in it. But when did the children ever live in towers? <laughs> or certainly they didn't build them. It's possible they inhabited it, but that seems strange. Like who built it then? And why would the children be living in it? So it's got all these anachronisms. There's things that don't make sense, but it's undeniably mystical and dark. I wonder, it's probably not the case because he looks so different with his white hair and everything and his limp and he doesn't look like a young person anymore. So I'm guessing the Kranich men, especially given the distance, didn't recognize him. But if they did, ooh, they'd have probably taken a few more shots at him. And that's another big difference from when the last time we were here. The locals, we didn't see them last time. They may not have really been fully allies because they didn't, exactly march with Rob, but they certainly weren't enemies. This is Ned's friendship with Hal and Reed in the balance, and that's Ned's son leading this army south. And the neck is vassal to Winterfell anyway. So here's a quote. Just as dangerous were its people, seldom seen, but always lurking. The swamp dwellers, the frog eaters, the mud men, Fen and Reed, Pete and Boggs, Cray and Quag, Greengood and Blackmire, those were the sort of names they gave themselves. The Ironborn called them all bog devils. A name not mentioned here that would make an awful lot of sense is House Marsh, aka Bowen Marsh's family. Their sigil is frogs, after all, so it really fits here. And we know that's in their northern house. So I don't know. It's, they're not mentioned, though. Maybe there's an area of the neck that isn't Kranigman. It's considered part of the neck, but they're more like regular human. I don't know. But it would fit certainly well, however... There's no indication that Bowen Marsh has the stature of a Kranigman, which is part of why I put forth this theory of, of being in the house in the neck, but not actually Kranigman. As part of recovering some of his identity, there's some specifics about him thinking of his time here with Rob, and it involves some of the characters that we're about to see. A massive table of carved stone filled the chamber, as it had for centuries. That was where I sat the last time I was here, he remembered. Rob was at the head of the table with the great John to his right and Roose Bolton on his left. The Glovers sat next to Helmand Tallhart. Karstark and his sons were across from them. So Helmand Tallhart is dead. So is Karstark and two of his three sons, the third being a captive still, along with the great John also mentioned here. Obviously, Rob is dead. Out of all those guys mentioned, only Bolton is alive and free. Theon leaves behind the mystical for the physical as he moves towards thinking about this place as a defensive structure and its strategic value and all of that. But that quickly turns again as well. As he moves from outside to inside, the difference is tangible. Outside versus inside, instead of 
the mystical or the physical defenses. We have these powerful sensory descriptions and, and almost panic right away, sights and smells of the worst kind. Pretty soon, what a surprise. We get some cannibalism. Dagon Cod says that he killed two men in one of the other towers that he found eating the dead. Dagon Cod is, sell, is someone we included in our talk about deep ones back in our A Feast for Crows coverage. In particular, we cited this line, he looked as if his father had sired him on a fish. So for a deeper explanation on that, go back to our Feast for Crows coverage. Deeper? <laughs> yes, deeper indeed. Pun intended. He's also the only one, as much as Dagon Cod is objectionable, he's the only one that sniffs out the trap here. He's the only one that doesn't, that openly challenges Theon, and he's right to, but of course, he gets killed. This offer of surrender is worthless. If they knew who they were dealing with, if they knew it was Ramsay Bolton, we just had a chapter at the Merman's Court where they described what Ramsay Bolton is like. They know of Ramsay in the North. They know what he does. But these Iron Men have no idea that Ramsay is the sort that sets girls loose in the woods and hunts them. They wouldn't trust that guy either if they knew he was that guy. Well, they probably wouldn't. Maybe they still would. They're awfully desperate here. And then this is the man who just pulled off the Red Wedding on the other end that they're trying to protect against. So really, though, that just goes to show just how screwed they are. They're caught between Roos and Ramsey. Theon shows a measure of skill here. It's actually pretty well done, his diplomacy. He says all the right things to make this work. It's a subtle triumph of human spirit. Despite everything he's been through, he does this really well, right? He's, he's, he's effective. He's confident, which is unusual given where he's been and how he's been treated. If he needs to pretend to be himself, to find himself again, then that's what he needs to do. And he's seeing that along. Like, this isn't a chance he may, maybe would have taken on his own. It's some, almost being forced on him. And it's sort of therapeutic. It's just that he's in need of so much of that. And he also knows, too, that these men are doomed no matter what. I mean, he knows Ramsey as well as anyone. He knows that no matter what they do, they're in big trouble. They're going to die, and it's going to be awful. So the net result is he conned them into a worse death. They would have died fighting, and that's what Ironborn almost yearn for. Instead, they had their weapons taken away and were flayed and put up on, on posts. An important aspect of how they were convinced, though, it's not just Theon's effective diplomacy, it's this concept of the letter itself. Recall back, let's take a long journey back all the way towards a Game of Thrones when Tyrion was in Mord's clutches in the sky cells of the Eyrie. I will put my promise in writing. Tyrion vowed. Some illiterates held writing in disdain. Others seemed to have a superstitious reverence for the written word, as if it were some sort of magic. Fortunately, Mord was one of the latter. And that's basically what happens here. They don't even open the letter. They None of them peel it open. None of them can read. So they what's the point? Like, But it's that same combination of superstitious reverence mixed with their own hopelessness and a little bit of wishful thinking, perhaps, which is related to that hopelessness. So Mord now has gold in his mouth because of his deal with Tyrion. Adrak Humble, the one who killed Dagon Cod and led the Ironborn out behind Theon, he ate his own words. He wound up with the so-called safe passage letter jammed in his mouth. A bit reminiscent of Davos, whose death double had an onion shoved in his mouth. So we have a trick being pulled in both cases too. So yeah, that's a theme. We got tricks and then words shoved in their mouths or onions or something. 
With the Ironborn gone from these towers, Roos's army can move up the causeway at will. After being informed, of course, that the towers are empty, Ramsay sends off a messenger, and soon enough, that procession arrives. The causeway through the swamp is so narrow, we get a reminder of how difficult this place is to pass through because you see how narrow Roos's army has to march. And well, that's also how they would have had to approach the, the structure and all its swampy territory. But the going here is even slower than it was for Rob. Because, again, the natives are hostile, whereas they were not hostile for Rob's army. Joe points out, Joe's always very aware of, of castles and stuff like that, how the three main towers are cut off from each other, communication-wise, because it's hard for them to go from one tower to the other without risking getting shot at. And, well, that's just not worth it, given one arrow, just a scratch from one arrow can cause, well, we saw what it can cause, there's no need to repeat it. So let's take a look at this group of, of people coming north with Roos, starting with Roos, with so many other fakes and fake identities. Well, a fake Roos comes in there. It's only 10 seconds, but... Back where the press was thickest at the center of the column rode a man armored in dark gray plate over a quilted tunic of blood red leather. His rondels were wrought in the shape of human heads with open mouths that shrieked in agony. From his shoulders streamed a pink woolen cloak embroidered with droplets of blood. Long streamers of red silk fluttered from the top of his closed helm. Fancy. Jeez, the rondels, op- human heads with open mouths, a trick in agony. What do, you, what do you tell the armorer? Like, okay, so for the rondels, what I want is human heads, but I want them... Shrieking in agony. <laughs> I mean, that's the instructions. <laughs> Did Roos inherit this from his dad or his dad's dad? Or he's like, no, I want a new set of armor with fresh heads shrieking in agony. I'm curious. It says long streamers of red silk fluttering. Yeah. Yeah. Like, if it's not windy, do they just lie there <laughs> flat on his head? He's got little pink streamers. Just... <laughs> yeah. As Theon continues with giving us uh, the physical description of Roos, because of course that's not Roos, that's Roos's armor on someone else. He, when Roos does emerge, we see, again, another person noticing that their eyes are the thing they really have in common, the thing that really stands out. Uh, otherwise, they don't look very similar at all. But those eyes, hmm. Theon also notes how emotionless Roos is, how joy and rage look the same on his face. Lady Dustin is going to make similar comments later about everything is just a game to him, how he doesn't really have feelings per se. Fat Walda's there. Don't really have a reason to dislike her. Uh, She's just kind of an innocent throughout all this, but I don't expect good things to happen to her. I think she's doomed. Aeneas Frey, uh, he's dead already at the start of T-Wow. He's the guy who falls in the pit traps dug by crow food umber. Jane Poole, of course, is there, also known as fake Arya. It's the focus on her eyes that's interesting here as well. Theon notices the eyes of her eyes, and he somewhat recognizes her, but he knows for sure that it's not Arya because of the eyes. Arya's eyes are not brown. It's a pretty interesting way to stay on theme here. He's noticing the eyes of Roose and Ramsay, and then he notices Jane Poole's eyes, and they're not Arya's eyes. We see the Riswells, they're going to maintain themselves on the fringes of the story that Barbary Dustin was born a Riswell. So that's part of why they are a close ally of the Boltons, one of the more dependable allies the Boltons might have. 
That said, they aren't necessarily that dependable, though one of them is named Roose Riswell, named after Roose Bolton. So that, that is a, there's been a, a longer standing connection there. Now, Theon thinks back to the way he's first judged Roose and boy, well, how mistaken he was. Here's the quote. Once a boy called Theon Greyjoy had enjoyed tweaking Bolton as they sat at council with Rob Stark, mocking his soft voice and making japes about leeches, he must have been mad. This was no man to jape with. You had only to look at Bolton to know that he had more cruelty in his pinky toe than all the phrase combined. And then he would know, right? <laughs> and this is all very important setup getting the Boltons and the phrase and seeing them together and, and understanding what's happening here. Because the Boltons are obviously going to be a bigger part of the second half of this book. They're and probably at least the first part of Wow, if not more. So as brutal as it was, removing Ironborn from the North is something Bolton will gladly use as part of his claim to supremacy. It's similar to what John told Stannis. Stannis. He told Stannis, don't fight other Northmen when you can fight the enemies of Northmen first. Yes, Bolton is bad, but he is a Northman. You'll get more friends in the North by fighting the Ironborn. And well, Bolton, even though he had to fight these Ironborn in order to get back home, he's still going to point it out, claim it as a victory of, hey, I'm kicking Ironborn out of the North. I'm doing what the leader's supposed to do. Makes for good optics on his part. That said, Stefan B. makes a good point about bad optics here, which is that Roos, in a very martial, very patriarchal society, he arrives back in his new domains that he's ruling for the first time, hiding in a cart full of women. And let's also be aware that the Krennic men are kind of on alert. Nina reminds us that Rob sent his will through Moat Kaelin, through the neck, expecting them to catch on and be part of it. Howland Reed is someone he counted on. We have yet to meet Howland Reed on screen, but his impact is felt. It's quite possibly him or his orders that we're seeing in terms of who leading these assaults, these guerrilla assaults against the Ironborn and these taking what they can against the Boltons. Joe also points out something interesting here. This is Victorian or Balon's legacy, if you want to call it that. Two very stupid men who insisted on throwing lots of soldiers into a bad war, a war that's not likely to succeed, that only has a few smart tactical things on its side, otherwise is very short-sighted. So Theon is actually allowed a victory here. It's, it's a hollow victory. It's conning his own people. But he's so far down the social ladder, so far down the humiliation ladder, so far traumatized that feeling success over anything is restorative a little bit. It's a little bit therapeutic. There's actually a reward. Instead of being a dungeon rat, he's now a dog, which is maybe more dehumanizing, but it's less threatening. And there's a little more hope in this situation. He's at least out in the sunlight, right? And he can, his food is better. It just goes to show when, you've, when you're that far down, even being allowed to sleep with dogs is, is an improvement. Hmm. Noga Frankel points out that, yeah, we, there's a lot of reasons to pity Theon, of course. 
And while we probably, most of us agree that, while he deserves some kind of justice, it wasn't Ramsey's justice that he deserved. But we should not give Theon credit, at least not yet, for being a better person. He's suffering, he's in pain, and maybe he doesn't deserve all this. But he hasn't repented even a little. And in the state he's in, repenting would be difficult. But let's be clear on where things are at. Basalt is volcanic, and these towers and this area and these huge stones are apparently made from basalt. There's a consistency with the geological situation, at least it seems that way, because there is multiple areas where we can point to where there's volcanic activity in the north, not to mention mountains, which could imply that in other places. But Winterfell's hot springs, as well as the situation at Hardhome, where there was some sort of what appeared to be a volcanic explosion some 600 years ago. And Tree Girl points out how thematically well the stone fits some of the other Blackstone locations around the globe in that it's hostile to life, right? Like you think about Sothorios and Yin and how that's this swampy, hostile territory filled with disease and poisons and bogs and a little bit like this. And there's a few other places kind of like that as well. A lot of, a lot of ancient Valyria's ruins are swampy. Some, you know, it's a whole continent. So you've got non-swampy areas too. But yeah, it tracks pretty well. Pretty much everywhere there's the oily black stone. And this isn't necessarily oily here, but it is black and it might be related. It might be a cousin of some of these other installations around the world. Uh, a recurring theme of that certainly is hostility to life and potentially mutations, which we might be seeing here. Check out our Great Empire of the Dawn episode for more on the, on the oily black stone. And also look out for an episode that is currently in production, or currently being written, rather. By the time you hear this, it may already be out. We're working on several episodes on Giants and Brandon the Builder with Crowfoot's Daughter, a.k.a. the Disputed Lands podcast. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. We are ready to move on to John 5, an onion or an apple, a.k.a. 63 Wildling Recruits. If you're looking for symbolic meaning in the onion and apple dichotomy, it could be that those are the two things most commonly stuffed in the mouth of an animal that's about to be roasted, right? Pig with an onion or an apple in its mouth, sitting on the banquet table. It's a common thing we associate with like medieval style banquets, right? To me, it's similar to what we went through with Reek. Whatever choice they make, they're doomed, right? Whether they stay and fight, they die. Whether they take Ramsey's offer, they die. Whether they take the onion or the apple, their situation is, is not likely to improve. Their situation is, in, is dire. Melisandre calls them a doomed people. So I wonder if that's what's being said here. There's a lot of other symbolic interpretations of the onion and the apple, and I'm very curious to hear what y'all have to say. There are some good ones in our social media outlets this week. John doesn't have a lot of choices either, right? He's got more choices than the free folk, but he's also kind of stuck. And well, he's going to do some dying of his own, but not so later. That's John 13. This is only John 5. We are not even halfway through John's story in this book. Adding members of the free folk to their ranks without the Night's Watch oath is one of the bigger grievances that the Night's Watch 
regulars have. Bowen Marsh complains bitterly about that. And of course, it's not nearly the only thing Bowen Marsh complains about. Another thing that contributes to John's death, apart from Bowen Marsh, is his lack of protection. As we've seen, John gradually and continuously sends his friends away into places where he needs them to be because he needs trusted men in those positions. It's something we've talked about a lot, but right here at the beginning of the chapter, it pops up again. And here's that quote. His candle had guttered out in a pool of wax, but morning light was shining through the shutters of his window. He misses Sam. He's no substitute for Sam. He's trying to do Sam's job with less time and less ability, and it just isn't going that well. Joe catches a nice piece of foreshadowing too here in the epilogue. John with his head on a desk in a pool of wax is gonna be what Kevin finds of Picel. Of course, Picel will be dead and John, well, John will be dead later. Hmm. He's been up half the night working on books and papers and not making a lot of progress. Not only does he not have a lot of trusted men, but he doesn't have a lot of skilled men. And that comes up very distinctly here. He doesn't even have a lot of people who know how to read, let alone being good at it or helpful about it. Like, they can't even read the words. So it's a real struggle. But he is on top of current events nearby, though, and lots happen. Here's a quote. John feared for Sam and Maester Eamon. Cotter Pike had written from Eastwatch to report that the storm crow had sighted the wreckage of a galley along the coast of Skagos. Whether the broken ship was Blackbird, one of Stannis Baratheon's cell sails, or some passing traitor, the crew of the Storm Crow had not been able to discern. It's not the Blackbird, though the Blackbird, that is the ship that took Sam and company to Bravos. That ship does wreck later in this book at Hardhome, not here. Back in Davos 1, he thinks that Oledo and Old Mother's son two different ships, smashed up on the rocks of Skagos. So the wreckage is almost certainly one of those two, or both, and they just mistook the wreckage for one ship when it was actually two. Oledo we had never really heard of before. Old Mother's son was seen in the Stepstones doing pirate stuff. And it was before this Eastwatch trip, because Arya hears about it in Bravos talking to some crew members. What that tells us is that as we probably suspected, as Davos suspected, Salador San never stopped being a pirate, even as he started working for Stannis. He continued being a pirate even while he was in Stannis' employ. Anyway, that may not turn out to be the end of the story for that crew. There's a chance that there's a few survivors from these ships. If so, we may find out about that in Davos' storyline. He's going to Skagos. So if they're alive and haven't been you know, eaten, then... Either we'll meet them potentially or maybe hear about them. A theme of this chapter is John worrying about which of the free folk will prove to be problems, meaning who's going to rise up, who's going to be violent, who's not going to cooperate, who might go out raiding, what, what have you. One of the signals to this is he sees new faces carved on non-werewood trees, unfriendly faces. Of course, unfriendly faces are kind of common on these werewood trees, but still, it doesn't look good to everyone else. They're like, well... This looks like violence. This looks like a threat. It's not friendly. But and it's also indication that they didn't really accept Stannis's forced, you know, dropping of their gods 
in exchange for worshiping R'hllor. They didn't really mean it, right? They didn't abandon thousands of years of cultural belief. No, they went right back to believing in the old gods. Maybe they also believe in R'hllor now. Maybe they're a little like Victorian where they added more gods to worship rather than subtracting any of the other ones. So I don't think there's very many free folk at all who abandon the old gods, possibly zero. <laughs> you know, it might be literal zero that actually like, no, nah, I don't believe in the old gods anymore. I, it's a hard to believe that someone would just be like, nah, I don't believe in gods anymore. That's like telling someone to stop loving someone. You can't decide to stop loving someone. It's not in your control like that. It's not a switch you can flip. It's not a promise you can make. You can't promise to feel a certain way. You can promise to do things. You can't promise to feel certain ways, at least not honestly. You could say it, <laughs> but that doesn't make it true. And of course, setting all this aside, the wildlings, the free folk, they're not the real danger. They are dangerous. Don't get me wrong. There's some real bad seeds in that group. But John's focused on them when really the bigger threats are coming from within. And in fact, it's a bit of, a bit of irony. The assassination of John might in turn make the free folk more violent. He's their advocate. He's the one working have them become one unit or at least have them work together without that linchpin, without that holding them together. It's kind of like Mance Raider holding all the different tribes together. Without him, it all falls apart and then they start warring again or at least not working together. Same deal here. I really don't think Bowen Marsh is going to kill Jon Snow and then turn around and say, oh, don't worry, we're still going to feed you. Nah. He's going to cut off their food supply probably quite possibly he's going to do it in an in a ill-advised way by telling them bluntly when they're outnumbered, meaning the Night's Watch outnumbered, and that may get the Night's Watch to turn on them. Don't forget what state of mind they're in when John is stabbed. John has just gotten them all worked up about going to fight Ramsey. They're in it. They're, they're like, we're ready to go. And then John gets stabbed. So, and it's a good line. The, the, the subtext, the foreshadowing, the worries are delivered here. John says, we had best all keep our shields up. And Ed makes his, one of his great comments where it seems jokey, but he says, you know, pomegranates, you know, all those seeds, I might choke on one, I'd rather have a turnip, you know, that kind of thing. It's jokey, but in retrospect, Ed was onto something there. He's like, don't push that guy too far. He might seem like he's not that dangerous, but just because he's not a warrior doesn't mean he's not dangerous. This is a real ideological man. He really believes in certain ways that the watch should be run. And if you go against that, well, we see what happens. Again, the debate of whether where John should be living is in, it comes up here, meaning living in the king's tower. John thinks I shouldn't move back there because it might be presumptuous. It might look like I think Stannis isn't coming back. He doesn't want anyone to think of himself as king because it's the king's tower. <laughs> and of course, that's foreshadowing for when he really is a king that he's not going to really want to be. It's going to be a duty thrust on him. Even though most Lord Commanders have stayed in the king's tower, he still thinks of it as projecting himself as a king. He's just very wary of, of this being too powerful or being that kind of leader. But again, this is a mistake. He needs to project, he needs that authority because he's trying to do very difficult things that convincing is not going to work. He's not going to be able to convince Bowen Marsh 
as we see, <laughs> quite clearly, he's never going to convince Bo and Marcy things are necessary. He might convince him to go along with it, but he's not going to convince him that he's right. That's why he has to be more commanding. He has to dominate these men because they're not going to listen to him. He still should get consensus. He should still talk to them and explain it to them. Melisandre and even Bowen Marsh were right about this. He should take on more of the reins of power if he's going to have to make powerful decisions. One of the comments Bowen makes is something I want to refer back to something I said at the beginning. He talks about how many of his best men are gone. He's talking about how the watch has been. And that has the impact of, of John thinking about recently dead leaders. Corrin, Donald Noy, Jarman Buckwell, Benjamin Stark may not be dead, but he's not here. He's not helping anybody at the moment in, at the watch, at the wall directly. G.R. Mormont himself. Just so many of these, it's not, he's not, none of those are even his direct friends, like let alone thinking of Iron Emmett, who he's going to send away and Giant, and he's going to eventually send away Dolores Ed. Pip and Gren, same deal. I mean, it's a dark but brilliant way to show how corruption can occur within an organization. We usually think of money and power favors, things like that causing corruption, but sometimes a ship runs aground simply because it has too few sailors and too many passengers. And that's what's happening here. John is one of the only ones with the vision, the perspective that's necessary and without enough other people on board with him, they're not going to follow along and then it falls apart. And there's not enough skilled people. There's not enough rangers he can count on. There's not enough... He doesn't have a maester. I mean, there's just... He's just lacking advice. It's very, very similar to what Danny's going through. Starvation, refugee populations, people who won't cooperate, inexperience, good moral character, but with paired with that inexperience, and an inability to detect the inherent cunning of people who are a lot more experienced, not knowing what some of the basic signs are because they haven't seen them before. And yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot of things. Danny doesn't have good advisors around her in Marine. So it's very, very familiar. As for the onion and apple portion, let's get into that again. Many of the free folk complain that the Night's Watch is starving them. That's not fair since... They were already starving, or worse, beyond the wall. But it's hard to be rational when you're starving. That's just a recurring theme. It's a reality that we have to accept. And that doesn't mean they're wrong about how desperate the situation is. They may be wrong about the Night's Watch causing them to starve, but they're not wrong that they're starving. The simple fact is that, that things are changing. Times are different. This is an unusual state of affairs. I mean, the free folk and the Night's Watch are teaming up. This is almost unheard of. Some, there's a question of whether John was being spontaneous with his offer of enrollment. It doesn't seem like it was, though, because at the beginning of the chapter, Bowen Marsh chides him on, are you really want to go ahead with this? And it seems like that's what he's referring to, is, is recruiting some free folk. John's wisdom really shows itself here. There's so many reasons to appreciate what John's trying to do and the way he thinks through these things. It's refreshing, uh, if you think about it from a real-world perspective, that he puts a lot of effort into thinking what it would be like if I was in their shoes. I, with the whole, our real world just needs a lot more of that. This attitude of, well, 
how would I feel if someone was asking me to do to make friends with the Lannisters? He's like, if I, who is my? They're I'm asking them to be friends with their worst enemies, and so he's trying to imagine the equivalent situation for him. And to him, that's the Lannisters, the ones who killed his family. So he understands why this is a tough sell, but he also understands that it's the only way they're going to survive, and he has to make them get it, even if whether he has to drag them to this conclusion or convince them, it's got to happen. It comes down to respect, again. You can be your own person, but you'll do what's needed, or you're going to experience the consequences. And you'll have to, you have to love the, that he mentions Jano Slint's execution. He's like, I'll cut my own brother's head off. <laughs> they saw me do it, you know, not like a week or two ago, whenever that was. <laughs> so they don't know how bad of a dude Janice Lynn was, but to them, it's like, wow, yeah, he really did execute one of his own men. So he does have credibility there. By the way, you know, it's funny because John likely almost positively will have to work with the Lannisters a bit. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Especially yeah, if he's like a king. Yeah, like a he's going to be king. faced with it. <laughs> yeah, king in the North. Uh, yeah. Even if he's never like Iron Throne King, which I'm kind of dubious of. But yeah, King in the North, I think he'll be. And yeah, he'll have to negotiate with them or at least he's friends with Tyrion, sort of. If, if that's a Lannister he has to deal with, that'll go a little easier. But Jamie, or if he has to deal with Cersei or maybe, <laughs> I don't know who else he would have to deal with, but it won't, it, there'll be some, some personal stuff to get over. Now, as far as these recruits for the Free Folk, again, it's 63 of them. It could go wrong. It could go well. We don't know. It could go violent. But one thing I want to point to is a recurring theme that I really love. A girl, a 12-year-old girl's like, hey, I can fight. You know, let me fight too. And let me get into the whole dichotomy between boys and girls here in a minute. But what I want to point to right now is how she shames everyone else into joining. He's like, okay, if this little girl is going to join, then what am I, right? And you got to remember just how sexist they are. The wildlings are less so, but still, if you're a full-grown man and a 12-year-old girl's like, I'll fight, <laughs> and you come from a culture where bravery is pretty much number one, the most important characteristic, the most important virtue, you can't just sit there and be like, I'm going to let this girl fight while I chill in the back. You feel that deeply, like, no, that's wrong. And we've seen other examples of that. Like, think of who was the first to step up to Theon to support him when Theon's like, all right, we're all going to die here at Winterfell and they're going to make songs about us, but better than surrendering or running away. Who crosses that line and says, I'll fight with you, Theon? Wex. The first one is Wex. He's this squire. He's like a couple years older than this 12-year-old. He's probably 14 or something. He's maybe not even that. That shames people like Black Lauren and the real warriors to come forward. But we have another more recent example, Willa. We just saw Willa Manderly perform brilliantly. And it, of course, it wasn't a performance. That was from the heart, just like it is for this girl. And just like it was with Wex and these others, once the young person sets the bar, the adults have to follow. And in this case, it's Halleck. Halleck is Harma's brother, and he's a, quote, man of note. And with him crossing the line to say, okay, I'll join, well, here comes more. The floodgates open, so to speak. Of course, it's still only 63 people, but that's, hey, that's a large increase over what they have percentage-wise. Let's turn to something darker. A pretty horrible moment comes when John realizes, wait a minute, there's... Where are all the babies? There were a lot of babies in arms before and they're gone. And he all of a sudden realizes, oh, 
of course, they're gone, gone. That exposure and starvation are the culprits here. And this is a real sad reflection, Nina writes, on what the free folk have become after everything they've gone through. Children are the next generation, right? The babies are the most precious thing that any culture of any time has ever had. You know, they may not all see it that way, but that's how I see it. And I think a lot of y'all will agree. That's the, you know, it's a cliche to say the children are the future, but it's, it's true. <laughs> I mean, it's literally true. And having like a whole generation or a whole like batch, for lack of a better term, of children all die off, that's substantially damaging on a, for a population's ability to recover. So when Melisandre says they're doomed, she's speaking from a prophetic way, from like a predictive way. But this is like hard data pointing to that outcome as well. Let's talk about the 12-year-old girl thing. Uh, John dismisses the girl as a child thinking, okay, 12-year-old boys are, are adults and 12-year-old girls are not. In his society, that's somewhat true because boys get taught to be adults sooner. It's, it's the way they're educated. It isn't anything to do with something natural. Like when a girl is 12, they're younger. No, and, and arguably they're older because girls start developing before boys in that sense. But educationally, the way this society is set up, that's where he's coming from on that. But he's wrong because these aren't Southerners. These aren't Southern boys and girls. Free folk girls are adults as soon as the boys are by any standard because of the way they live and the, the fact that they don't care as much about gender amongst the free folk in terms of leadership. And if you can fight, you can fight. I mean, Igret proves that. To John's credit, he doesn't argue even a little. He's like, okay. You can fight, you can fight. So that's cool. That's something we like about John is that he projects toughness. He's, he's hard in that sense. He's not easy to move, but he's not unreasonable and he's definitely not unfair. He listens to reason. It's that real world experience ages you up real fast and that's going to be a major theme in the next chapter as it has been for a while, which is Tyrion, uh, aka Young Griff and his lack of real world experience with his overflowing of education. So John is just continuously focused on getting the watch to see the free folk as people, as humans. And if it doesn't work to see them as people with feelings and wants and desires, if, he, if that trick doesn't work, well, he's going to fall back on what he says. I forget when, what chapter it is. He's going to tell, hey, what do you think is going to happen when they die then? Do you think they're just going to stay there like that? If they were just corpses, you might have an argument. But corpses in these parts tend to stand back up and attack us. So just forgetting about him and letting them die is saying, let them become a part of the other's army. So yeah, that's really not a good solution at all. So you see, John makes a really good point there. Perhaps he should have made that point sooner. But anyway, along the same lines of John getting the free folk wrong in regards to when their people are ready to be warriors with regards to young girls. It's the same thing that we see coming. Solis is going to show up soon and she's going to get all sorts of things wrong and be like, oh, this is the descendant of the king beyond the wall. So he has king's blood. And they're going to talk about, kind of stubbornly enforce their cultural values on people who have their own set of cultural values and just kind of ignore that. It's something that's going to come up frequently that the Southrons just don't understand the free folk and a lot of it's willful. Nina wonders if about these new heart trees, whether there's anything mystical here, whether they can actually work. Does it actually connect? Is that possible? 
or is it just uh, symbolic of their worship or sort of pushing back against the, the enforced uh, adoption of R'hllor and rejection of their own gods? I don't know. I don't have a strong answer there. I tend to doubt there's anything mystical to it, but I wouldn't exactly be surprised if there is a, a connection there. Maybe just that werewoods live so long. So that's why they are, are still extant with their faces where maybe thousands of years ago, other trees had faces, but those trees have long since died out. And no one's doing, making new ones like that. No one's carving faces on non-werewoods anymore. It's possible. Can I just say, we were talking in the chat about carving werewood faces. And I was thought uh, I thought of uh, pumpkin carvers ha! in the real world. Can you picture someone who's like very talented and they do a very intricate Whoa. design? Yeah, people do some good pumpkin designs. You're right, like something like a carving like a whole witch outline or something <laughs> like that, or like a whole like other face of one of the others or something. Yeah. <laughs> Giant's face. That's pretty cool. That's a great idea. Yeah. So again, I want to repeat that the oath that the free folk took to Stannis and R'hllor is, is not very binding. It's another example of the proverbial oath at sword point. We talked about it at the time when they were marching through the wall. Now we actually see firsthand how they're going about reacting to the proverbial oath at sword point. Nina writes that the speech and plan are one of the highlights of John's tenure as Lord Commander. He's not wrong in sizing up the situation. The Watch has lost a lot of its already not sizable strength. The others are most definitely coming. And the free folk on this side of the wall are a ready pool of eyes and hands. More than that, John has correctly judged them. They may or may not have been against the Watch in the past, but now, undeniably, the Watch and the free folk share a common enemy, the others, and a common goal, not starving to death. John isn't asking them to like the Night's Watch or to be a part of it, just to recognize that the Watch is nowhere near the threat that the others are and that the others are just as big a threat to them as they are to the Free Folk. So they do have very strong common ground, the type that hasn't been seen in thousands of years. And it's time to make that adjustment. It's time to be like John and make... Be willing to change your mind quickly when presented with new information. Don't be Bowen Marsh. Don't stick to the old ways just because, well, just because they're the old ways. We saw how well that works out for the Ironborn. Hedgehogs and cats are life, says John's disregard for trappings might reassure Danny after some perfumed princes. Hey, great point. Yeah, that might actually, it's not working out right now, but it might pay off after so much court living and being around so much of that BS that Danny is currently surrounded by, so much courtly dishonesty and flowery protestations. And so, yeah, that's a great point. Allison Howland from Facebook says, the building tension about absolutely untenable shortages of resources almost everywhere we go is already difficult to read. Wins is going to be rough. Can't wait. <laughs> How many more little personal tragedies is George going to subject us to? I thought that was a very well said and succinct, Allison. Thank you for that comment. I totally agree. A lot of people are wondering, speaking of hedgehogs and casts for life comment about Danny liking John's disregard for the trappings, turn that around and how will the free folk view Danny? I think positively. For, for one thing, the gender issue won't be as much. They won't care about her being a woman as much as Westeros will. They might, they'll certainly see her as strong, They'll certainly see her as the type that can lead a coalition of, of, of a wide variety of cultures, which is what the free folk is. Let's never forget that they're not a united people. I mean, the people of the frozen shore are really nothing like the Fens, who are really nothing like the 
types of wild things we see living close to the wall, like craster or gilly. I mean, not the craster and gilly are that similar, but you see what I'm saying. Like this is there's there's a lots of types of free folk. It's kind of like the first men. We think of them as one, but really they were an amalgam of different races. That's what Danny is leading. She's got Unsullied. She's got Dothraki. She's probably going to have Reloris. She's got some Westerosi and other things too. So that's something that's maybe they'll recognize as, as common ground. There's a notable blowing of a horn here to break up a tumult of voices. And it's a bit of a parallel. This is chapter 22. But in A Feast for Crows chapter 20, a certain hell horn was just blown, breaking up the tumult there. And that leads, the hell horn being blown, that is, to Asha heading off to Deepwood Mott, where we're going to meet up with her next week in Valar Revitas. Uh, we finished two of the four chapters today. And I want to give a shout out to people who support us on Patreon. A benefit of supporting us on Patreon is removing network ads. Any sort of ads that come from outside, from third parties, get uh, removed by tuning into our Patreon-only feed. also contains all the chapter-by-chapter versions of Valar Reredis, meaning the versions of this where you can listen to just one character all the way through. You can listen to all of Tyrion all the way through in order rather than, you know, the normal order of, well, the normal order. So we have that available for patrons. We also have things like scripts. You can get access to that. All of our scripts from all time, whether it's Valar Reredis notes or episodes from all the way back in 2012, We've got almost all of those in one folder. There's a few that got lost over the years, but <laughs> most of them are there. If you're not a big fan of Patreon, you can go to our website. There's other ways to support. You can just send a straight PayPal donation if that's your preferred method. We also have a newer method. Anchor support is available. Anchor is our host these days. Anchor is owned by Spotify. And you can sign up through them. It just adds one, ten, or $5 to your monthly Spotify bill. So if you're already on there, it's, it's a pretty convenient way to fire and forget support and not have to deal with any sort of emails or regular recurring anything. But that's that. We appreciate those of you who do that. We also appreciate anyone who leaves us a review on iTunes, clicks the like button on YouTube. It really does make a huge difference in terms of algorithms and getting us noticed outside of our own circle. Uh, it's a big world out there, podcasting and YouTube. And... We thrive on word of mouth as much as anything else. Tyrion Six, the one with lots of Sivas, aka a northern bear in Selhoris. Tyrion plays Sivas with Young Griff, then Cavo. In both cases, there's a lot of manipulation. With the boy, it's the mental game. Tyrion talks him into mistakes in the game and then perhaps in real life. With Cavo, Tyrion loses on purpose. Halden makes it clear that this is how Cavo takes bribes. Don't just give him money. That's illegal and obviously so. It's insulting too. Well, probably. But a wager on a game of skill, well, there's plausible deniability all around. No one can prove Tyrion lost on purpose. And even if they could, they can't prove Cavo knew he was going to lose on purpose. There's going to be another chapter of Tyrion's with a lot of Sivas. And in fact, Sivas is going to become a regular feature of his arc. I just reread his one fully finished Winds of Winter chapter last night, and Sivas comes up several times. In fact, it's mentioned that he's been playing Sivas with Brown Ben Plum on the regular since he joined the Second Sons, but it's not nearly the only mention of it. Of course, there's the piece that gets blood on it, the dragon piece that gets blood on it, the white dragon piece. So Sivas is, 
from here on out, as far as we can see, it's going to continue to be important. But I think it peaks here. I think it's the most important here because this is when the actual gameplay is part of the story instead of just something that's happening during the story. It's never more deeply woven in as it is here, I think. Because even the strategies used by the players are the story. So maybe this is Saivas's peak in the series so far. It's a really big chapter. We just finished a short John chapter. This is one of the longer chapters in the book. It creates huge movement in the Aegon slash Connington plotline. It sets up large portions of Danny's path through Essos in the Winds of Winter, as well as giving us a lot more on the mystical prophetic side of her arc. Uh, there's a lot of Tyrion himself too, I guess. <laughs> no, it's really, it's just this when several chapters later, Makoro's going to have that famous quote where he says, Tyrion, you know, I, I see you in the midst of all the dragons, young and old, new and this, fake and real, whatever. I, I didn't pull the exact quote. You know the one I'm talking about. This is the chapter that most describes that quote, that most fulfills that line, even though, of course, it's later. It hasn't happened yet. Because this is the only chapter where Tyrion straddles both dragon stories. After this chapter, he's going to be pretty much on Danny's story. Well, he'll be traveling towards Danny, but everything about it will, will be circling around Danny. Everyone's going to talk about her. She's on everyone's lips. And in this chapter, he's still with Aegon at the beginning and then splits off. The pacing here is also really interesting because as far as being so important for other reasons, this chapter is where there's a big switch in the POV structure. Since Tyrion's no longer the observer for Aegon and Griff, Griff becomes the observer for that company. And that's pretty huge that there's a new POV, especially that one. And Tyrion's story has been the dominant arc so far, if any of them have been in terms of quantity. You may care about other ones more. That's, of course, a matter of opinion. But in terms of screen time, this is chapter 23 out of 73 that we're on right now. So we're pretty far from the halfway point. But we're almost halfway through the Tyrion chapters. In terms of total length of time in this book dedicated to Tyrion, we're really close to the halfway point already, but nowhere near the halfway point of the actual book. So there'll be a lot less Tyrion in the second half. John's the one who has the most time in the second half. Here's how this one starts. He dreamt of his lord father and the shrouded lord. This could have been a lot more intense of a dream, but of course, George opted for potent simplicity. He's been out for a while. Uh, he's been unconscious for a while. So like I said, there's room for him to have had long, lengthy dreams, like when he was recovering from the Blackwater, for example. We know what it means to think of his father and the Shrouded Lord as, uh, as some sort of generic haunting. He just was in the Sorrows last chapter. So that seems to be the connection there. Maybe that connection would have been deeper had he actually met the Shrouded Lord. But swimming in the sorrows is, a, that's certainly getting, that's certainly a hands-on approach. As Halden points out, there may never be certainty that Tyrion is grayscale free. If you're like me, you didn't even believe for a second that Tyrion was going to die when he fell in the river. So it's kind of like, you could look at that as maybe a cheap device. But George then inverts it. Instead of making it a cheap, he's like, I knew you guys weren't going to fall for that. Here's the real tension. Tyrion might get grayscale any minute forever. <laughs> so we have this lingering worry. Even those of us who are deep in the story, there's a chance Tyrion could develop grayscale later. Tyrion has spent a large portion of his previous chapters describing grayscale and, and thinking about it, and now it's on him. 
or it's rather, it's a risk of around him, associated with him. And this is sad. This is really sad. Tyrion already is very limited in his ability to connect with people. He's a, he's a very lonely guy. Even though he's around people all the time, he doesn't connect with them. He doesn't have common ground with people. People are constantly denigrating him. He doesn't have... His outlook on life is very unique. Thus, that's part of why it's hard for him to find common ground. Being ultra-rich means he doesn't have many peers. Being a dwarf means he doesn't have many peers. So there's just... We've been through this. Tyrion is... is in a lot of ways, he's an outcast despite his extreme privilege. Now he has this on top of it. It's kind of sad that he now there's a, yet another huge barrier between him and other people. The first game of Syvass of many in this chapter is against Young Griff. And Tyrion manipulates him easily. At first, it's simple enough. He's, he uses the always surprisingly effective, what, you scared method to get the game started? At least he's no Victorian who got what you scared did into sailing all the way to Slaver's Bay. <laughs> this is just playing a board game. In our relentless comparisons of Young Griff to John and Danny, note how it did not work. The what you scared method when Godry the Giant Slayer tried it on John. He literally said, oh, I, I see your, you fear and laughs. And John's like, yeah, sure, buddy, whatever. Now, Danny isn't someone who duels or spars with swords or weapons in general. Nevertheless, I still think we got a parallel example in her last chapter when she was not provoked by spit in the face, whereas members of her court were. And she was like, well, chill, everybody. We've had several occasions to cite how Tywin planned his initial strategy on the assumption that Rob Stark would be over-aggressive. Remember all the way back in Game of Thrones? And that backfired badly. I talked about that a lot at the time. And we've had reasons to bring it back up because it's a seminal example. And here we get it again. Young Griff arrayed his army for attack with dragon, elephants, and heavy horse up front. A young man's formation, as bold as it is foolish. He risks all for the quick kill. He let the prince have the first move. That's what Tywin was expecting. I just want to say we just watched the Queen's Gambit. Yeah. And totally with Syvas right there, can really see how little he cared about young Griff. Take the first move. Yeah, he's like, you're gonna you, you want to be aggressive? I'm gonna let you be aggressive. Go ahead, go first. Yeah. Nina writes, note how Aegon Syvas set up his a quote army for attack with dragon elephants and heavy horse up front, what Tyrion calls a Young man's formation, risking all for the quick kill. This is what his strategy in Westeros will be, bringing his forces, including at least elephants, we know there's elephants with the Golden Company, right away to go for the Iron Throne quickly. And that might work, though he may not hold it. So, well, I, I'm quite sure he won't hold it. But the quick strike to take the Iron Throne, that, I think that might very well work, which is humorous that it doesn't work here. But that's because he's playing against Tyrion. If he lands with the Golden Company and Griff and all those, he'll be up against, well, Kevin was just killed, so who are the military commanders going to be? Mace Tyrell, uh, whoever else Cersei appoints. So it's, yeah, so he's not, they're not going to be up against a Tyrion uh, in terms of a strategist. So it might actually work against a lesser foe, but it's not going to work here in this board game against someone who's more than prepared for it. And it's also not a good sign for young Griff in terms of how easily manipulated he is. We like the kid. I mean, don't get me wrong. I criticize a lot about this scenario, but it's mostly because the bar is so high. We're talking about a king of the seven kingdoms. You need a really good qualified person for that. 
Thus, it's appropriate to look at his weaknesses and wonder how those weaknesses might be exploited by the Iron Throne, by politicians, by whoever. Tyrion pricks his pride to get the game started and then talks him into changing his strategy during the game, manipulates him multiple ways, and Griff is just, le- a young Griff is just led around like, okay, okay, you got me. He just, he's not rooted to his own opinions here. He's just easily movable. And that's partly because he has so little real-world experience. He's got lots of academic, educational experience. Thus, he responds to it. Tyrion breaks it down like a teacher would. He's like, don't do this. It'll result in this. Don't do this. It'll result in this. Tyrion's points are pretty strong. The thing is, there's a lot he leaves out. (laughs) And that's where the problems come. In the game, he tricks Aegon into isolating his army from his dragon. Your dragon was too far away to help you. Your dragon was too far away to help you. (laughs) And then he does the same in real life. He's like, go to Westeros, and then the dragon will come to you. That sounds like the dragon might be too far away to help him. And it sounds like it's the exact same setup of what's happening in the game is what might happen in the story. He won't even know, Tyrion that is, that Aegon took his advice since he's going to leave their company. And Tyrion will be surprised. He's going to be like, wait, what? They took my advice? Not just because getting them to change their entire strategy based on a single speech during a board game is not very likely, (laughs) but because he doesn't actually think it's a good plan. Tyrion wasn't saying, look, what I would do is this is the good advice. No, he's just messing with him. I don't truly understand what Tyrion's motivation was here. I think it's just more of, he doesn't care. He's just messing with the kid for the heck of it, just because he wants to. I don't think he has some greater motivation here. Because again, he did not think this was going to work. He was floored that they changed their plan. He's like, wow, they really are going west? (laughs) To be clear, there's a lot of merit. Again, some of the points Tyrion makes are really strong. He's like, don't wait till Cersei's not in charge. Make your move while Cersei's in charge because a lot of people are going to reject her and it's a good chance to pick up allies. However, again, it's not the only consideration and not to mention... Tyrion is wrong about the current state of affairs. Cersei isn't actually in charge right now. She's imprisoned by the faith. Tyrion points out that Kevin would be a good regent if it was forced on him, but he would never ask for it. Well, that did happen. He, it was forced on him. He is regent probably right about this time that this conversation is happening. And there's more to it. They learn here in this chapter with more explanation later that Daenerys is, quote, sore beset in marine with foes all around her. All the more reason to go to her to help her get out of that jam, right? Maybe. If not, well, maybe that's why expecting her to come to you isn't a great idea. Maybe she can't. Maybe she's still going to be sore beset in marine. And something Tyrion doesn't consider is what we saw in Quentin's chapter. And this is a really powerful point. There's just no way to get to Slaver's Bay without ships of your own. They couldn't, like a small group of them couldn't get there. Volantis is not going to just be okay with the Golden Company sailing to Marine without knowing whose side they're on. That's just too much of a balance of power shifter. They do not want the Golden Company involved. So the Golden Company, when this announcement happens that Tyrion hears that the Golden Company is heading west, he's like, is it a joke? Are they lying? Are they going to seize the ships when they get out to sea? Because why else would they be doing this? He's floored. (laughs) He can't understand. He's like, wow, they really are going to go west. 
so he thinks it through and just it's astonishing to him. But of course, it's not a ruse. They really are going west. From Volantis's point of view, you can understand it. Like I said, they would rather the Golden Company be on their side. But if the Golden Company is a foe, that's really bad. So if you can't make them a friend, remove them from the equation entirely. Sending them off to Westeros means they're not going to get involved. And that's just fine for Volantis, who wants to topple Daenerys. If the Golden Company isn't going to be their friend, have them out of the picture. Several of you pointed out, too, that while Tyrion is launching into all these great speeches and convincing Aegon of what's what, Halden's just sitting right there. He was watching the game. I mean, there's a chance Halden wandered off to go do something else, but he didn't interrupt or say, no, that's where you're wrong or any of that stuff. So more likely, he was somewhat convinced, too. Or these other factors I just listed about Daenerys and being, not being able to get there, not being able to get to Slaver's Bay, the Volantine stuff, all that. There's, there's other reasons that Tyrion doesn't necessarily credit that might be a part of their decision. But we actually know that Griff doesn't, is, doesn't know either. What happens is young Griff gets in front of the Golden Company is like, let's not go to Daenerys. Let's go west. And they're like, oh, now there's a plan. And they like it because it's bold because it's not the things Tyrion said. It's not going with your hat in your hand going, can I have a dragon, please? And it works. Aegon's anger flares. He kicks the board over. This is when Tyrion thinks he may be a Targaryen after all. Before that, there was an even more ominous comparison, though. Quote, There, that's made him good and angry. The dwarf could not help but think of Joffrey. I have a gift for angering princes. Okay, don't get me wrong. I don't think Aegon is anywhere near as bad as Joffrey. But we're getting a variety of snippets of his personality. And overall, well, it's, it's mixed. I mean, he's cheerful most of the time. He's smart. He's very brave. He's stubborn about some things, but clearly not stubborn about other things, given how easily manipulated he's been seen to, uh, shown to be in this chapter. And again, though, the biggest thing is that he's untested. I, I'm not going to stop harping on that. It's so important. And let's talk about how it is a big theme of this chapter. His lack of experience is likely to create some very unexpected results. Just as they didn't know he was subject to manipulation from Tyrion, who knows how he's going to respond, Aegon, to other first times. This is a young kid who hasn't had first times of a lot of things. I doubt battle will be an issue because, again, he seems really brave. That's probably not going to be a problem. But what about, say, girls? What about when women come in the picture? What if Arianne, who is awfully convincing and seductive, just targets him? How's he going to resist that? A teenage boy with Arianne coming at him? He's, he's going to be as more overmatched than Tyrion's got him overmatched here. What if he falls for Elia Sand, Lady Lance, who's, who's about his age, a little younger than him? What if it's like Rhaegar and Elia all over again, Elia Sand with <laughs> this Rhaegar's fake son here? How, that would be a pretty amazing little uh, parallel situation there. And power. What about power? What's power going to do to him? That's an even bigger test. We have no idea how power is going to impact him. Some people, power makes them more dutiful. They take the responsibility and they're like, I have, this, this power is a responsibility. I will use it wisely. I'll do my best. Some people are like Cersei, where it really goes to their head. They get drunk with power. They get sure of their own story. They get you know more and more selfish. It makes them worse, what have you. I don't know which of these versions or some other version is going to be Aegon. The point is we have no idea. He also hasn't tasted failure yet. At one point, Tyrion realizes no one's even talked to him strongly. No one's even like argued with him that much. No one's talked to him like he's 
not a prince. It, it, it really pushes back against Varus's narrative to Kevin at the end of the book that this kid has been through a lot. Eh, has he? <laughs> He's got a great education, but been through a lot? I don't think so. He hasn't tasted failure hardly. Like he, Look at how he lo- reacts to losing a board game. Like, how's he going to react to real losses? Maybe he handles it well. But again, that's a problem that he's untested. You got to know these things. So this lack of real experience is a big issue. And George is really good at showing us the variety of ways in which it's an issue. Nina writes that, yeah, Aegon comes across as a pretty good person. And in this chapter, there's some more detail about him being good. Another example of his bravery, he doesn't, shun Tyrion for going into the water. Yandri, Ysilla, they're wary. Halden, they don't want to touch him. But Griff is like, nah, this is, he's one of our crow, he's one of us, etc. So that's a big plus right there. And of course, Lamora looks even better than that, but more on her in a minute. He's not a bad kid, he's just weighing over his head. Nina writes, he thinks he's the hero of the narrative without realizing that the real heroes are way ahead of him. That's a really good way to put it. They're farther along on this journey, even though they're even younger than him. And there's a constant theme of their being protective of him. They've stunted his growth, even as they've educated him so well. Okay, so when they wanted him to go below decks, when the stone men jumped on, on the ship, okay, fair, fair, that's really dangerous. But here they're just like, stay on the boat while we go into town. Come on. Is it really that dangerous? That really does... As a kid, you're really going to think you're going to take that the hard way. You're like, really? I can't walk through the town? Like, what danger is that really? Like, I'm just walking around, going to shops and businesses. Is it really that dangerous? So you do get a sense that if that's how it's always been, then he's been perhaps even more sheltered than we thought. And that's why they have this Sivas game, because he's moping around like, I'm stuck on board the ship. They're being overprotective again. And so that's maybe why he's so aggressive when he gets to Westeros. Remember what happens? He's like, I'm going to lead the attack on Storm's End. I wonder if this is like pushing back against the way they raised him. Like, look, I'm going to prove to all of you that I am capable of this. That I, you shouldn't have been sheltering me. I could have been leading from the front all along. It's like overcompensating for all the enforced caution from his youth. And supporting Danny later that's going to be really important as far as Tyrion's perspective, because here is when he starts to suspect that this isn't really Rhaegar's son. He mocks Aegon, uh, the story, the Pisswater Prince story is like, that does make for a splendid story. The singers are going to certainly have fun with that, which is part of why he finds it a little suspicious. It's like, well, because it makes such a good song, that makes it suspicious because he realizes the benefit of such things and how well people receive things like that. People love a good story. That's why we're all here. (laughs) He knows Westerosi are like that too. They will prefer the good story to the good politician, to the good leader. And that's what young Griff is. He's the good story. And that's part of what Tyrion sniffs out. He's like, this is too good to be true. And that's when he, when he has that line, he may well be a Targaryen after all. That is evidence of his suspicion. He wouldn't be thinking that if he was doubting the veracity of Aegon's heritage here. So yeah, so he, do, he doesn't state it outright. He doesn't think in his mind, I wonder if this kid's fake, but this, it's, it's there in a number of ways. Plus, 
if we back up a little, Tyrion also thought about there's more in this venture than coins or castles, which is again a hint that Aegon is Illyrio's son, not the son of a Blackfire. Well, I mean, not the son of Rhaegar, rather. He probably is the son of a Blackfire if Sarah is one. So there's a lot of little pieces that Tyrion has put together that suggest as a whole, this doesn't add up to this kid actually being Rhaegar's son. Nina has a great theory here that one of the ways Tyrion can ingratiate himself with Danny, one of the ways that he can prove his value to her is to point this out, is to convince her that this kid is the Mummer's Dragon, which will be true. He almost certainly is fake. So he will have really proven himself to be a valuable ally by like, look, this kid who's ahead of you in the line of succession, he's not really, and I've got the proof for it or at least a convincing set of reasons. That's something that Danny will very much value, and it's something that you can say, look, you've proven yourself. So that's, that's a good theory. I like that. I can see that happening. Now, back to the Pisswater Prince story real quick. Whenever you see Arbor Gold being served, take note. It is an indication of falsehoods. It is the sole subject of our episode called Lies and Arbor Gold that we had our friend Chloe from Girls Gone Canon on as a guest. She did a great job. In this chapter is one of the examples that we discussed. There's a lot of examples of lies in Arbor Gold. This Aegon situation is one. This exact quote is one of the ones we go into great detail on in that episode. His father sold him to Lord Varys for a jug of Arbor Gold. He had other sons, but had never tasted Arbor Gold. Varys gave the piss water boy to my lady mother and carried me away. So check out that episode for a detailed explanation of, of that and of Arbor Gold in general. But this is the first time anyone's ever talked to young Griff like this. It's what, at least that's what Tyrion thinks at the time. So when John Connington tells Daenerys or tells him that Daenerys is going to accept you, he believes that because, well, why wouldn't he? He's been told that he's so great that everyone loves him, that he's destined to be this, this prince, to be this new king. Now Tyrion comes along, tells him harsh truths. Like, look, Westerosi girls are going to laugh at your blue hair. Uh, Danny is going to look at you like a beggar. You know, all these other harsh truths that in his mind, Tyrion's mind, they should have told him these things already. But he's realizing the more time he spends with this kid that no, they didn't teach him that either. Again, his education, the more we delve into the type of education we've had, it's been very academic and not very social. He hasn't been parented. He hasn't had a mother and a father teaching him how to be a person in the world, how to deal with his emotions. They've taught him facts. They've taught him figures. They've taught him things like that. There's just a lot of ways to look at this and see the shortcomings of his education. And he's not dumb. We pointed out young Griff is fairly intelligent. And that's part of why it stings hearing these things because on some level, he's smart enough to realize they're true. He's smart enough to realize that he's been sheltered and that pricks his pride as much as anything Tyrion says because that impl implication is there. It's always there hanging over his head. And he hasn't actually ever fought a person in earnest with a sword. He hasn't won a battle. He hasn't done any of these things. Let's jump ahead. Let's take a look directly at that grand speech to Kevin and make a comparison. Aegon had been shaped for rule since before he could walk. He has been trained in arms as befits a knight to be but that was not the end of his education. He reads and writes. He speaks several tongues. He has studied history and law and poetry. 
a septa has instructed him in the mysteries of the faith since he was old enough to understand them. He has lived with fisher folk, worked with his hands, swum in rivers, and mended nets and learned to wash his own clothes at need. He can fish and cook and bind up a wound. He knows what it is like to be hungry, to be hunted, to be afraid. Tommen has been taught that kingship is his right. Aegon knows that kingship is his duty, that a king must put his people first and live and rule for them. So that's all good. I mean, if every king had that sort of education, Westeros would be better off probably, but maybe not a lot better off. Look at Rob Stark. Rob Stark didn't last very long as king, but he had a better idea what he was doing because he was raised next to a lord. Ned took him everywhere and showed him what he was doing. He got firsthand education of ruling. You don't get that on a pole boat being around a bunch of people who have never ruled before. Like, yeah, sure, Griff was handed the king for a little while, but it was brief. There's not much, not much indication that that is being passed on to him. So really quite a different set of standards here is going on. He, he's been taught to put his people first, but he hasn't been taught how. This line from Vars to Kevin, it, it hits pretty hard when you read it at the end of the book. But compare it to what Tyrion says. This is just so far beyond what we just read. I know that she spent her childhood in exile, impoverished, living on dreams and schemes, running from one city to the next, always fearful, never safe, friendless, but for a brother who was, by all accounts, half mad, a brother who sold her maidenhood to the Dothraki for promise of an army. I know that somewhere out upon the grass, her dragons hatched, and so did she. I know she is proud. How not? What else was left her but pride? I know she is strong. How not? The Dothraki despise weakness. If Daenerys had been weak, she would have perished with Viserys. I know she is fierce. Astapor, Yunkai, and Marine are proof enough of that. She has crossed the grasslands and the red waste, survived assassins and conspiracies, and fell sorceries, grieved for a brother and a husband and a son, trod the cities of the slavers to dust beneath her dainty sandaled feet. Really were making me laugh. Sandaled feet. (laughs) I was like, what is he doing? He looked like a monkey at first. (laughs) Okay. So that's a fantastic take. I mean, he's completely right. It's the best rundown of her experience any character has ever uttered about her, and he's never met her. And when laid out the way he does, that is a fantastic overpowering resume. I mean, young Griff, Again, he's smart enough to realize how small he is next to that. He hasn't done anything like that. He hasn't done one of those things. <laughs> and it bothers him a lot. Again, that's his pride. He's like, this girl with a weaker claim than me, who's younger than me, has done so much more than me. And she's so much more powerful than me. Again, I think this is part of what motivates his boldness later because he's got to measure up to that. If he wants her to marry him, he's got to measure up. He doesn't want to end up like, you know, Quentin. <laughs> Rolling Knight from our Flick channel makes a great catch here, pointing out that Tyrion is being quaith. <laughs> Their plan was Aegon is going to go east to win Danny, But Tyrion says, no, to win Danny, you must go west. To go east, you must go west. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, Tyrion becomes quaith without the mask. Another good question Tyrion raises is, how are you so sure Danny's going to marry him? That's why I think he's 
trying so hard later because he, he realizes what Tyrion's saying is true, that why would he marry her? Or why would she marry him? But she might. We have no idea how Danny will react to him. I'm, I think we're all really curious, actually, to know, <laughs> as, especially because we don't know the circumstances under which she'll find out. Uh, that a lot determines, a lot hinges on how she gets the news and what accompanies it and who's delivering the news and what she learns afterwards. So it's a pretty big deal, but we have, we, it's hard to predict at this point. So we'll leave that for now. So the first part of this chapter is big on Aegon, the black dragon, possibly the false dragon. The second half is big on Daenerys, the red dragon, the true dragon, the real, the non-mirror image dragon. He goes into town with Halden to cruise the rumor mill and everything is about her. It's all the talk is about her. That would make Aegon even more prideful and out of sorts, what have you, whatever word you choose, hearing that everyone's talking about his younger uh, aunt <laughs> who's doing so well. We get the line, the Triarch's grotesquerie is in need of a Sivas playing dwarf. And well, that is what he's going to be later. A little mini foreshadowing there, except it won't be a Triarch that he's in the grotesquerie of. It'll be the Yellow Whale's grotesquerie. Let's look at some of these rumors. This is a familiar way to respond to rumors. This is a familiar line that we heard from someone else not too long ago. This time it's Halden. They say, said Halden, by they, you mean the slavers, the exiles she drove from Astapor and Marine, mere calumnies. Remember what Rhaegar Frey said about Rob at the Merman's Court? He's like, they say... Of course, they say that about brave Ramsey Bolton. <laughs> In this case, the lies are a little closer to the truth. I mean, Rob turned into a wolf to kill Wendell Manderley. You can maybe say Rob kind of turned into a wolf, but he didn't really turn into a wolf and he definitely didn't kill Wendell Manderley. But some of the lies about Daenerys have a seed of truth to them. For example, those who speak against her are impaled on spikes to be to die lingering deaths. It wasn't because they spoke against her, but she did have people impaled on spikes to die lingering deaths. That really did happen. But that's a pro-slaver version of what happened because she killed them because they were they killed 163 slave children and mounted them on pikes or whatever. So it, it, that part of the story gets left out when it's told this way. The rumor she feeds her dragons on the flesh of newborn babes. She doesn't do that intentionally, but Hosea was killed by a dragon, that little girl. So also remember, Danny tried to keep that story hidden. Clearly it got out though. Clearly lots of people are talking about it if this dude in Solorius is just dropping in like a random rumor. So that story is clearly out there. Then we get more comparisons when the Green Grey says the shave pate wants to feed the hostages to her dragons which might be true. Not that Danny would allow that, but that rumor going, passing through a lot of different lips and ears could turn into Danny being culpable instead of it being all just what Skaha as the shape hate wants. So all these rumors are twisted in the same way though. They're all like the state message, the state being the slavers. It's the distorted version of their message. They're against Daenerys, so all these rumors about Daenerys are going to omit the bad slaver stuff and just point everything at her. Balanced against that is Halden being smart enough to know this as well. He realizes that, yeah, okay, uh, I understand these are calumnies because, of course, they're angry with Daener Daenerys. But Cavo says, that doesn't matter. Yeah, it's true, 
the slavers are going to lie. But ultimately, the bottom line here is that she's breaking the slave trade. There's a lot of powerful people that don't want that. And that's the bottom line. Yeah, they're lying about it, but we all know why. We all know that this is their big source of wealth and they're not going to let that go easily. So let's move on to the, another huge part of this chapter. Again, this is a beefy chapter talking about the mystical side of Daenerys. We talked about the politics and her military situation, but we get a deep dive for at least a semi-deep dive into the R'hllor side of things and how she's viewed by the slaves here. And this is really big. Quote. Halden nodded. Benero has sent forth the word from Volantis. Her coming is the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. From smoke and salt was she born to make the world anew. She is Azor Ahai returned, and her triumph over darkness will bring a summer that will never end. Death itself will bend its knee, and all those who die fighting in her cause shall be reborn. What? Wow. <laughs> from that, we can glean that it's another person that sees the dragons and goes, that's proof of the prophecy. Something that might happen with Melisandre when she's con confronted with that. Something that Makoro believed. Something that clearly Benero believes. And Benero is the high priest of the Red Temple in Volantis, the biggest Red Temple in the world. This line, death will bend its knee. Is that meaning the defeat of winter? Seeing like the others as the personification of death? Is that what it means? Or is it those who die fighting in her cause shall be reborn. Does that mean, is that just like religious dogma? Maybe he's seeing the armies of the dead in his visions and he's seeing the whites fighting for the undead and thinks and that's what he's seeing in his visions. Like, oh, they, they're killed fighting for Danny and then they're raised by uh, the others. And he's seeing a, like a distorted version of that in his visions. Or... Maybe there is going to be a lot of fire whites. <laughs> kind of don't think so, though. I think it's more of the first thing I said. I think it's standard dogma from their, from Reloris. The line, all those who die fighting in her cause shall be reborn, is repeated elsewhere. Solis says that about the free folk. He's like, yeah, let them die. Better that they should be die and be reborn in the light. Victorian says the exact same line when he burns those slave girls on the ship after being taught about R'hllor by Makoro. So I think this is just standard R'hllorist dogma saying that people who die are reborn in the light. So that isn't mystical. I think that's just part of their spiel. Still, there's a lot of mystical in that. And this whole smoke and salt business and the, the dragons proving things, it's hard to argue about this. And these slavers, I mean, rather these slaves aren't going to be convinced. They are very much sold on this. So it's really big deal. It's, it's, it's threatening even the non-mystical parts. Aemon Targaryen, Maester Aemon, that is, was the last person to make the same claim as Benero. And these are polar opposite type people. Aemon is a rational... I mean, he's got mystical stuff going on, but he's a maester. He approaches things more logically. He's not a religious zealot. So we have a, a maester, a scholar, a student pointing to the dragons as evidence. And now we have this religious leader, this zealous guy who does have visions. He can read the flames. He's, he's seen things that we don't know about that pertain to this. And so we've got both of these independent sources. There's no way Eamon and Benero know each other. There's no conspiracy here. This is just way too many people saying this, way too many believers. Daenerys is as or high. We should take that very seriously. 
And pretty soon, a lot of these other in-world characters will be as well. It's very portentous. Tyrion notes that four out of five people in the city are slaves. Now, that's just an estimate, but still, wow. It's going to be the same in Volantis, too. It's nothing like Slaver's Bay. You look at Marine, and those slaves were locked down. They had no ability to revolt. They were just so controlled, so constantly flogged and kept separate. Here in Volantis and Selhoris, and you get the impression that the other surrounding area is similar, the slaves have more agency, which is weird to hear that slaves have more agency, but they do. There's a di distinct difference between slaves who are allowed to attend religious ceremonies and worship openly gods they want to and take part in these prayers and yell and, and scream and prostrate themselves. Miranese slaves can't go doing that. They're far more locked down, slavers, base slaves. It's a different situation. So if this four out of five city slave population city rises up. It's a much bigger deal than, than Marine. And Marine could not have risen on its own. They needed Danny's help. Here, they only maybe need Danny's encouragement. They may get both. <laughs> but in Marine also, there's no religious fervor behind it all. To them, they're like, they see Daenerys as a savior after the fact. Because like, oh, look, she saved us, so she's a savior. But here... She's, a prophes she's prophesied well in advance that she's coming. It's a very different scenario. Much more of a powder keg, much more potent, much more dangerous, uh, potentially much more helpful to Danny in the short term, but also potentially a huge burden for her later if she has to answer for all these zealots and what they do will reflect on her potentially. And here is another example of just how far it's gone. This quote is really telling. In Volantis... Thousands of slaves and freedmen crowd this temple plaza every night to hear Benero shriek of bleeding stars and a sword of fire that will cleanse the world. He has been preaching that Volantis will surely burn if the Triarchs take up arms against the Silver Queen. Again, you can't possibly imagine that happening, Marine. When the Miranese would not allow a slave to preach to other slaves that the rulers of the city shouldn't attack this person who's wrecking slavery. <laughs> the, the huge amounts of slaves are openly listening to this man say the triarchs will burn if they take up arms against the silver queen. So Daenerys is their religious savior and their political savior. She is, she's both the person that's going to overturn the world order and the person that's wrecking the slave trade. So what a powder keg it is for the Valentine leaders. What are they supposed to do about that? They, if they openly oppose Daenerys, they risk the entire slave population rising up against them. If they don't do something about Daenerys, then, well, that's almost certainly going to happen too. It's a lot like both of these other chapters we've dealt with today. Those ironborn in the towers are screwed no matter what they do. And John, the, the free folk with John. We're kind of screwed no matter what they do. And the Volantines, kind of screwed no matter what they do. We've gone over lots of details as to why we think Volantis is doomed. All caps, doom, extra O's, doomed. And this is part of why. It's like every scenario you think through, it, and it results in Volantis being bashed or burned. And there's more evidence of it here in this chapter. Tyrion thinks to himself, he's, he, when, he's aware, when he's made aware of the fact that there's Dothraki close by, because very early in the chapter, he's told they could hear the bells ringing. The Dothraki were so close on the far side of the river. 
He thinks if I were to call, I would faint at Selhoris. Let the Volantines rush to defend it, then swing south and ride hard for Volantis itself. Yeah, a pretty standard strategy. So this is another, another angle to the, the way Volantis could be destroyed. Uh, if it's destroyed by Dragonfire, well, maybe the Dithraki will help give her an assist here. They'll give her a hand. We do expect them to follow her after all. She'll have a lot, if not a huge number, of the Dithraki in her army. Well, if she takes down Volantis, you could definitely see them playing a part of it. Maybe they'll be the ones that make the feint towards Selhoris while she takes the rest of her army towards Volantis. I could definitely see that. And it's even possible that Tyrion will be the one to implement that plan. Tyrion may be in a leadership role by the time this whole Volantis plotline plays out on page. He may be the one to say what I would do is make a feint for... He may actually get to put this in play. And it's a very interesting how this is framed because it's like a theoretical series of moves, which is very well demonstrated by a board game with military-style pieces on it. Cybass has crossbows and dragons and elephants and heavy cavalry and all these same elements that we're discussing. Earlier in the chapter, we pointed out the focus shift from Aegon to Danny, and it's also a shift for Tyrion. He goes from his zenith, meaning his some of his best takes, his read on Daenerys is amazing. His manipulation of Aegon, it's not necessarily good, but it's impressive. Still, he goes from saying amazing insight, great takes to being awful. His separation from the group is certainly more of a whimper than a bang. I can't help but notice that these amazing insights come after he's been alcohol-free for quite a while. And as soon as he has a drink, with his, while he's playing Cybass with Cavo, they have dinner and he, he drinks a little and he's like, oh, that's pretty good. And we get a really subtle hint. This is masterful by George. When the food arrives... Tyrion grabs a chunk of the meat. It's so hot, he burns himself and he burns his mouth. But he's, it's so good. He thinks it's so tasty. He does it again. He burns his hand again because it's so good. That is very telling. Like his self-control is waning and it shows where his, some of his weaknesses are. And it is terrible. The scene in the brothel is awful. There's just really not much good about it. The only slightly good things are that he starts to realize that it's a mistake. He realizes it's awful. He realizes it's not going to help. He realizes it doesn't make him feel good. Raping a slave is not... Why would that make him feel good? Like, he wanted gratification but got guilt. And I hope you recognize it as rape. It's very, very simply rape. And this is not a context thing. It's not... Oh, in this timeline, it's not... They wouldn't consider it rape. It's, it's a modern definition. No! No, 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 no. Modern definitions are where there's actually a broader definition of rape. This is as basic as it gets. Rape is always, in any time, in any setting, in any era, sex with someone who doesn't want to have sex. And that is 100% what this is, and it's enforced with violence. She has whip marks on her back. She clearly didn't want to be there. It's that basic. If she doesn't perform, she doesn't do what she's told... Tyrion won't be the one to beat her up, but someone will. So it is violently enforced. And you might not notice the difference because Tyrion goes to brothels all the time. But there's a huge difference because a brothel in King's Landing has free sex worker. Not free like they don't cost anything. I mean that they are independent. They don't, they're not 
forced to be there. Maybe a little bit of society forces them to be there, but they're not literally imprisoned and forced. They can quit and go work somewhere else if they want. So Tyrion knows that only, that deep down inside, that only social convention, only a, a series of lies that are easy to see through prevents this from being openly called rape. But it clearly is. So it's one of the most awful moments in the series. Not because we haven't seen worse, but because it's, we rarely see anything this bad from a character that we're supposed to root for. Theon's done way worse. Euron, Victorian. Like if you just want to do POV characters, Theon, all, pretty much all the Ironborn characters except, except Asha maybe have done way worse. Even Asha's done pretty bad things. But we're not necessarily imbued from the beginning with a sense of this character, someone we're going to root for. Certainly not Aaron. Certainly not Victorian. Maybe Asha. But... She's only had a couple of chapters. We're not nearly as deep in her psyche, her personality. Tyrion has been on screen as much as anyone, if not more so. George is George's favorite character, et cetera. So there's just all this self-destruction, this raping, all this stuff is just, he just don't want to see it. But, you know, George doesn't pull punches with his characterizations. This is, he's, he wants us to see Tyrion's self-destructiveness. It gets even worse when you think about how similar it is to Taisha. Taisha was forced into that moment of gang rape in the barracks through, again, threat of violence to a person who isn't actually a willing sex worker. It's not much different. And then we get Jorah Mormont to, to add on to it all, sitting there with a girl that looks like Danny. And that's the implication there is obvious. And Can I just say, that's one of the creepiest things in the whole series to me, honestly. But just the idea that this whole time Jorah has just been lusting after Danny and then he finds a girl and he's just picturing her. The idea that she, Danny has no control over what he's fantasizing about. It's creepy Ugh. as hell. Tyrion's showing up. That's what it means to him too. He's like, oh, wow this is my chance to get back in with Daenerys because he's, this is the reward I can bring her. Of course, Daenerys is confused. I mean, Tyrion's confused because he thinks that he's taking him to Cersei, which is a segue to talk about Cersei for a minute. His take on Cersei is really good too. He goes through the spiel about Cersei sees, when someone talks back, she sees that as treason. It's a really good take. It's not as quite as strong as the take on Danny, in part because he doesn't know Danny, so it's a lot more insightful and impressive. He has lived with Cersei his whole life. So, of course, he knows her very well. But he's very accurate. I agree with what he says, and it shows exactly what Varys and Illyria were looking for in him. Like, oh, th these kind of reads on people, this kind of ability to break down someone's personality and predict what they're going to do, that's his value. And it's, he's really good at that. The problem is that he's got other ideas in mind. He's not just going to do what they want. But it really also backs up so much we said about Cersei. How many times did we compare Cersei to Ares? How many times did we, did we, like a lot, how many times did we compare Cersei to King Magor several times as well? We compared Cersei to a lot of different Targaryen kings. And flat out Tyrion says, Cersei is as gentle as King Magor, as selfless as Aegon the Unworthy, as wise as Mad Ares. Yep. I almost wish I had cited this, chat, this that quote back when we were really diving deep on Cersei's chapters in A Feast for Crows. But hey, I'm sure there'll be more chances. Cersei... We've got more Cersei chapters to come and more of Cersei acting like Ares is entirely possible or other Targaryens while also acting like herself. Speaking of someone on the opposite end of the spectrum, but also a woman, we have Lamor. Extremely generous, extremely unselfish, extremely kind, extremely good. And 
imperceptible, as, as well as Tyrion knows Cersei. He doesn't know anything about Lamar other than these basic things I just said about her being seemingly decent and all. And he respects her a little more because she, and the rest of us do probably too, because she forced the water from his lungs. That was very brave of her. Maybe, maybe it was just pushing on his chest, but maybe it was mouth to mouth. And she hugged him when he woke up. Like, that's real love. Like, that Tyrion doesn't get that. He almost doesn't know how to react to it. It's a little sad that he's, just, he's had so little love in his life that he doesn't know how to respond to it. And Nina writes, what's notable about both Lamar and Aegon's kindness toward Tyrion is how this chapter shows Tyrion at his worst. He gets that kindness shown to him early in the chapter and then just goes on and abuses this, this slave girl. Tyrion cautions Aegon about the word must much earlier in the chapter. He says, must is not a word queens like to hear. <laughs> you know who says must to a queen? Next chapter is the Green Grace saying must to Daenerys when advancing these so-called traditionalist Miranese policies. She says, the mother of dragons must don the Tokar or be forever hated. And then she says, if you do not marry a Miranese nobleman, your reign must end as it began in blood and fire. And then she says, your worship must marry Hisdar in the Temple of the Graces. So there's just must, 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 must. There's all these musts. And this is next chapter. And there's another that isn't a must, but it's basically the same. He says, or she says, the gods of gifts won't consider it a legitimate marriage. It's kind of like, would not. Like, uh, that is, that, she's speaking for the gods. Of course, she is a, you know, a high priestess. So in her culture, she's allowed to do that. <laughs> so people listen to her. More on her when we get to this next chapter in just a few minutes here. It's a really good segue to the end of Tyrion's discussion here because there's all this nice overlap. Noga Frankel asks, what is the climate like in Volantis? Not everywhere a never-ending summer sounds like a good thing. For example, Dorne. Yeah, it's, it's, it's close to the equator. It's, oh, it's swampy. I replied, yeah, it's, it's hot and humid. Oh, okay. And I was... Noga brought up, why does a never-ending summer sound like a good thing to people there? <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> Everyone there would be like, uh, no thanks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it only sounds good to zealots because I guess they haven't thought it through. I mean, we, it doesn't sound good to a single reader, I don't think. Halden's fate. We may have gotten a clue to Halden's fate when they're passing through Celorius. There's this, this, this nice quote here. Under the town walls, parchment lanterns had been lit above the stalls, throwing pools of colored light upon the cobbled path. Tyrion watched as Halden's face turned green, then red, then purple. Purple is a bad color for a face. Red's not great either. A red is usually just anger. Green, green is sick. Red is anger. Purple is choking. Obviously, there's other interpretations there, and maybe it's just something entirely else. But, you know, there, George has so much work foreshadowing, so many double meanings. That one kind of stood out to me a little bit. So if Halden dies of, like, poison or something or being strangled, we'll know that this was, uh, in retrospect, this was foreshadowing. But... To me, it sounds like he had one of Willy Wonka's candies. <laughs> nice. Dornish Dame says, this girl, the redhead in the, in the brothel, is a redhead like Sansa, who was also abused by Joffrey. And this is, Dornish Dame says, this scene is maybe a bit what it would have been like had Tyrion actually forced Sansa to consummate their marriage. That's a good point. Yeah, because it's it would have been worse because Sansa's a character we know. And it, it helps, our, uh, helps us be a little bit detached from this scene because we don't know this character at all. Um, if it was someone we knew, ooh, yeah, that would be... Let's move on. Danny Four, better the butcher than the meat, a.k.a. to tie a Miranese knot or not. Regarding the title, 
Dario, in this chapter, suggests a plan that's essentially the same as the Red Wedding, slaughtering many of the most powerful members of the nobility while marrying Hisdar. It's a chapter very focused on this question of marriage to Hisdar. It's, it's a lot more focused on this one issue where we just got this Tyrion chapter that's dealing with a lot of major plot points and a lot of character shifts and arc changes and pacing changes. This is a lot more focused on this one issue. And of course, even that said, there's a lot else going on because this is a Song of Ice and Fire after all. But she's led to believe that the only way, the best way, the peaceful way to securing this city is through this marriage. And well, it starts like this. Galaza Galaire arrived at the Great Pyramid attended by a dozen white graces, girls of noble birth who were still too young to have served their year in the temple's pleasure gardens. I often write GG for her abbreviation, and then I have to decide whether to say Galaza Galari or Green Grace, because either way, she's GG. GG, also common phrase meaning good game. And well, Galaza is out gaming Daenerys badly. Yeah, she <laughs> runs a good game. Yeah. <laughs> I think Danny will win in the long run, but right now, Galaza, Danny may win the war, but Galaza is winning all these individual little verbal battles. The beginning of the chapter opens with the opposite of Danny's previous. Good catch by Joe on that one. In the previous chapter, Danny 3, the opening was of these incredibly erotic graphic dance scenes, these, these sex slaves performing. Here we have these dozen white graces, girls of noble birth who are too young for such things and are you know, trained in a temple and all that. The, the quote is, they're veiled in white, armored in their innocence. So yeah, that is a polar opposite. Nina says, bringing the white graces to meet Daenerys is a neat show of power on a few levels and an immediate sign of the green graces' shrewdness. For one, it's a subtle reminder that Galaza has connections among the Myrnese nobility through her religious function and natural go-betweens to transmit information. Note that the white graces are all noble-born girls, which is to say they're members of the former slaving class. These are all the daughters of slavers. It's also perhaps a little rebuttal to Danny's taking of hostages from among the Miranese nobility long before Danny came to Marine and took pages and cupbearers from its former slaving class. The Green Grace had Miranese noble families giving her their daughters, right? Meaning that this is what she was. The Green Grace is the one who collected these daughters. And maybe they don't seem like hostages, but they could turn into hostages on the flip of a switch because she has possession of them. So there's a political strength here underlying what the Green Grace is doing. And there's a lot of subtle hints to just how powerful she is, which is a part of the main basis for determining that she is the most likely candidate to be the harpy. Galas is quick to point out that Danny has not reacted to the killings of more of her men by harming the hostages. This, this is something that Tyrion could have helped her with something that Jamie learned, something that Jamie imparted to Ryman Frey. Don't make a threat you're not willing to carry out. Danny should have known right away that she wasn't going to kill children. Danny, come on, you're Danny. You don't do that. Of course, that's not, not going to work. So it just ended up making the situation worse for her because she took these kids on she immediately starts liking them, which is it. That's it right there. There's no way she's ever going to kill them at that point, if there ever was, which there probably wasn't. So all of a sudden, she's sitting there with showing everybody that she's not willing to follow through, which gives them more leeway to push her even farther, to, to try to push the envelope, to try to kill more people because they know she's not going to fight back or at least not fight back by killing hostages. 
And Galaza being there, that might be part of why she's there, to make sure Danny stays that way, to make sure Danny doesn't change her mind. And the one of the reasons she might change her mind is either losing her temper or being pushed too far or Skahas. Skahas would absolutely kill the children. We talked about this last chapter. The rumors are already flowing outside, well outside of Slaver's Bay that Daenerys feeds children to her dragons. This is our subtle hint, maybe not so subtle, that this has been happening. Skahas clearly has, prior to this scene off page, argued with Danny about following through. He's like, they broke the peace. Kill the hostages. And she's like, no, I just don't want to. And he's so he's clearly brought it up several times because it, it, it's clearly like a point, a sore spot with her. But you got to appreciate her morality. As much as I criticize her for not following through, I didn't want her to. <laughs> I didn't want her to kill the children. It's better for her to break her word than to follow through on killing kids. She just shouldn't have put herself in that spot in the first place. It's like a bad Sivas move, basically. This is a, a move she shouldn't have made in the first place. Even a good portion of the surrounding details in this chapter are geared towards showing how few uh, options she has, not just moves she can make, but how few allies she has, because everyone is opposed to her with very few exceptions. One example comes here early in the chapter. She reaches out to the city of Tolos. They insulted her in response. She reaches out to the city of Mantares, and they do worse by sending the heads of her envoys back. We know what a huge breach of diplomacy it is to kill envoys. If those cities are a little more than names to you, Talos, Mantaris, I'll do a quick run through the region since it's relevant to discussion about alliances. Marine sits at the northern point of Slaver's Bay. Of course, this is all going to make more sense if you look at a map, but this might clear it up for you. Still, I recommend looking at a map, especially a Klarfeld map. Yeah, take a moment and search the known world. Claridox map. Yes. Pull that up. So, if you're looking at where Marine is sitting at the northern point of Slaver's Bay, all northerly directions lead quickly to the Dothraki Sea. Northeast, northwest, straight north. It's all Dothraki Sea, basically. East is Lazar. And that's one of the few allies they have. That's cleared up in this chapter. Dario returns and says, okay, they're going to send us food. But no military help, just food. Food's really important. They're starving, just like, seems like almost every POV, someone's starving somewhere, if not lots of someone's. No different here. Farther east of Lazar is the Red Waste. Southeast, ditto, but that's the direction towards Karth. If you just go straight east, you'll hit the Bone Mountains. Southeast is how you get to Karth, as Danny did. She passed through the Red Waste going, actually, it was more of a straight south for her, but still, that's the direction she went, ended up at Karth. Straight south is Yunkai. Straight farther south is Astapor. Southwest is actual Slaver's Bay. West is the Demon Road, and eventually the shattered Valyrian Peninsula. After you pass the ruin of Borash, which we know, don't know much about, which is on the Demon Road, there's a fork that comes in the road. You can either continue west or head south. If you go south, it's Talos. And again, remember, these are the dragon roads, Valyrian roads. These are very strong, well-defined roads. These aren't like paths or even like the King's Road. These are half-magical asphalt. If you were to pass that fork and not go south to Talos, you would end up in Mantaris. And if you were to look at the wide swath of destruction left by the doom, Mantaris is right on the edge of that. It's like if the doom had gone a little farther out, if its, if it's uh, region of destruction had been a little wider, Mantaris would have been swallowed up in it too. So it's right on the outskirts of that. It sits on the tip of an island sea called the Sea of Sighs. 
and the Sea of Sighs extends deep into doom-ravaged territory. The water is red, and there's multiple accounts of the people there being monsters. Given what looks like a landscape of natural and supernatural fallout, and the possibility of blood magic, this is all possibly an explanation or a series of explanations. So we'll, we'll expand on the Demon Road, Mantaris, Illyria, Talos, the Isle of Cedars, and some, some of these other places some other day. That'll be fun. Claridox.de if you want to see that visually. When she says, if you will forgive my saying so, your radiance looks weary. Are you sleeping? That's a needle. That is a real, that's rude. <laughs> that is the, the example of polite rudeness. Galaza knows exactly why Danny isn't sleeping. Her people are being murdered <laughs> every night. More people are turning up dead. It's like, gosh, why aren't you sleeping? Hello, it's obvious. So that's just, <laughs> you know, pointed politeness. If she doesn't know herself that Danny is waking up in the middle of the night worried about people being murdered, then she's heartless. <laughs> or she's, so I think it's important. I think she's doing this on purpose. I think she knows exactly what she's saying. She's insulting Danny in a way that Danny doesn't necessarily recognize and is an insult, but we can. So even if Galaza Galari is not the harpy, again, she is dominating Danny in these exchanges. She has so much more experience with politics. She has so much more experience with talking, with diplomacy. And with her own culture. I mean, she knows these people. She was raised in this culture. She's the high priestess. She was, yeah, like her whole family for generations is from here. Her native advantages are overwhelming. However, though Tyrion as an advisor could easily backfire for Danny in the long run, this is a spot where his insight would be valuable. He would catch a lot of this nuance that she's missing. And they might not even try if they realized she had a more savvy advisor on her side, someone who's as maybe as capable of being as cruel as they are. Can he put food in the bellies of my children and bring peace back to my streets? Can you? The Green Grace asked. A king is not a god, but there is still much that a strong man might do. When my people look at you, they see a conqueror from across the seas come to murder us and make slaves of our children. A king could change that. A highborn king of pure Gascari blood could reconcile the city to your rule. Elsewise, I fear your reign must end as it began in blood and fire. Mm, yeah, I mean, a lot of people are going to look at Daenerys and say, look at her as a conqueror from across the seas, come to murder us and make slaves of our children. A king could change that if she marries Aegon, who is set to be very popular. That could reconcile Westeros to her rule. I don't actually think that's going to happen, but you can see the same argument being made to her, the same considerations, the same political scenario. Again, it's not our perspective. We know Danny's not like that. The in-world perspective, though, is being very well set up for her to be viewed that way. We just saw it in Tyrion's chapters, all these crazy rumors flying about her that have very little basis in truth. Only a tiny little seed of truth is buried in there. And it's only going to get worse. The rumors are going to spread farther. And the farther rumors spread, the more fantastical, the, the farther from the truth they get. Because each time they get retold, they get embellished a little more. And that really adds up over time. Tyrion calls her a rescuer, right? He's, he recognizes that about her. But that's an intelligent, perceptive take that most people aren't going to get. They're going to listen to the rumors. They're only going to get a part of the rumors. And they're just going to believe that 
or believe, oh, maybe that's a little exaggerated. Maybe she doesn't kill all the children. Maybe she only killed a few. That's the way they're going to dis- distill those rumors. They're not going to completely flip it and believe it's someone else doing it. So they're not going to look at Marine the way we do. We know she's in Marine in part because she wants to rehabilitate a horrible place. But to outsiders, most people in the world are going to look at her like they look at any power broker, any king or queen. They're going to look at her as just carving out a kingdom for herself. That's what it looks like. Just like every other person who carves out a kingdom, they're doing it for themselves. It's for power. It's for territory. It's not for compassion. It's not for empathy. That would surprise them. And frankly, that is hard to believe. But the only reason we know it is because we've been inside her head so much and the very few who have seen her operate up close, like Erie, Jiki, you know, Masande, Barrist, and people like that, who, who know she really is like this. But that's a hard sell to people who are thousands of leagues away that have never met her in person. Another way this chapter gets a little dark is the notion that these slaves, these weavers, are the ones who were murdered. That's the specific killings that happened a particular night before this chapter. There's some evidence that these are specifically known people that were murdered. Back in Danny 1, there were slaves to a man named Grazdan Galare, who was cousin to the Green Grace. That's the guy who wanted to keep getting profits from his freed slaves over their, because in his mind, well, I taught them their skills, so I should continue to profit off of their use of their skills. Very you know, ruling class oriented take there, which I think most of us would be like, are you kidding me? That's how Danny reacted. Are you kidding me? And so she made his punishment worse for even daring to ask for that. It's quite possible that these three were the ones murdered over that. Danny indicates that the three who were murdered here gave her a tapestry that she has hanging over her bed or maybe, or in her bedroom or something. So it could be the same ones. There's no, it's not confirmed that it's the same group, but it would make sense for them to revenge themselves on her uh, on those three because of Danny standing up for them and because they believe that they uh, deserve pro- the profits from them. So very dark. Glaza also argues, his dark can't offer you an army, but he can offer you his history and his bloodline is really powerful. It's important. It's another, it's an interesting thing, steering her away from more military power. Like if she were to marry some guy, some Miranese noble that, that could bring soldiers to the mix, that's not something that the, that the Miranese want. They don't want their potential military strength peeling off to Danny's side. Interesting that they have a prophecy here. There's a casually mentioned that marrying the dragon to the harpy will, will fulfill a prophecy. It sounds an awful lot like some of these other prophecies of a dragon marrying this or that or the pact of ice and fire or the prince that was promised. These other things that thematically have some resonance there. But we don't get much detail on that. Some ancient, it almost certainly relates to the time back when this Giscari uh, lands were being constantly defeated by Valyrian incursions. There were five Valyrian wars with Giscari uh, that the Giscari fought and they lost them all. So you can see why that might be something they hoped for. And the way we could finally get back on top is to marry these people that keep beating us because clearly we're not going to beat them ourselves. Let's talk briefly about Hisdar. Galaza was so confident that her takes would be received well by Danny, or at least that they would be convincing that she brought him along with, which is another sign of who's really in charge here. <laughs> this shows where her authority is. Behind the scenes, she's got all these noble children in her possession. She's got the religion. You know, she's the spokesman for their gods. 
So this is a lot of hints of just how powerful she really is. His daughter does a pretty good job, again, with this theme of people being convincing. His diplomacy is quality. I don't like him, but I've got to say his arguments are solid. They're not good. They're, not, they're dishonest, but they're convincing. And he does it. He presents himself smartly. He doesn't come off as prideful. He doesn't come off as cocky. He doesn't talk to her the way he probably will talk to her a little later, the way he talks to other people. He's very humble, which is probably hard for him to do because he's ultra rich, you know, full of himself kind of guy. Uh, he was raised that way. But that is a valuable skill he has for being a diplomat, for being, for winning people's minds over, especially hers, is that he's very good at appearing to be humble. And he admits that, yeah, of course I want a crown. Like, who wouldn't want a crown? But, you know, that doesn't mean I'm some ambitious, murderous fellow, of course. Like, who wouldn't want a crown? He phrases it well. It's a good answer. But the best answer is, you know, Marine can't handle another war. And that registers with her because she does want peace. She does want, she does feel compassion for the Miranese, doesn't want any more killing than there has to be. And well, a war would be a lot of killing. So that's pretty straightforward. Try to avoid that. Now, this is the same guy that argued for the opening of the fighting pits. That's how you know there's just clearly more going on here, that he has a lot more at stake, a lot more in mind, a lot of goals and ambitions that he's not revealing here. He's just like everyone else in the Miranese nobility that he wants to restore slavery. He's not a good guy. Not at all. He may be not as bad as some of these others. He's certainly not as brutal or as murderous, but he's certainly just as willing to send brutal, murderous people to do things that he needs done. Zdar is going to be the good cop and be like, oh, I'm a good guy. I can make the murder stop. If he can make the murder stop, then he has some say in it, right? <laughs> There's some organization behind all this, but this is Danny's inexperience not piecing all that together. She doesn't have experience with government structures, with political alliances, with understanding that the she's suspicious. I mean, she's got the intuition to say, if he can stop the murders, doesn't that make him connected to it somehow? Yes, it does. But she's not willing to go all the way with that because she's not totally sure of herself. And she doesn't want to throw away what might be her best option. She looks at his dar and is like, this is not good. This is not, he doesn't love me. He's not a great dude. But I got to do something and it could be worse. She's definitely settling, <laughs> right? His dar is settling. And in more ways than one, both as a lover and as a husband, politically speaking. But what other option does she have? Well, maybe she does have other options, but she doesn't see them. And he, he, again, he talks a good talk with his, a new time has come. The Miranese way of doing business is old. We've got he's, his protestations of a new era are like, that's a pretty good selling point. You know, he's like, Miriam's been stuck in these old rules. We, we need to change things. He's saying we need to change all these things. But he doesn't actually want to change the most important thing that Danny wants to change, which is the slavery. He's like, yeah, we'll move forward on this. We'll progress in this area. We'll progress in this area. But we're not getting rid of slavery. So that's the deal breaker, ultimately. And Danny doesn't see it that way. She I don't think she quite hones in on that being the thing that all this is about. All the sweetness, all the this and that. It's all about keeping slavery intact. That's the only thing that they really care about. If they can keep slavery intact with Daenerys still being queen, they're fine with that. But they 
probably don't expect that to be possible. So thus, they have to get rid of her one way or another. Marriage to Hisdar, for political reasons, doing her duty to save her people as she sees it is a little similar to Rob Stark marrying a Frey. A tough decision to marry someone you haven't met, someone you don't love. It's a tough, for a young person, it's even more impressive to, to make that call because, yeah, I mean... Wow, committing yourself to another person like that for political reasons is just something that's just so far afield from our own personal experiences. Now, Barrison Selmy comes in after his dar heads off, and he's just—he's very much Barrison here. He can't—he can't pretend to be happy about what's going on. She says, "Are you happy for me, sir?" And he says, "If that's your command." <laughs> and this is very similar to what his dar said when she's like, "His dar, do you love me?" And he's like, "Well, if you." want me to. <laughs> so this is sort of her playing through something that she's already given up on. She knows that she has to marry for politics and she knows that he's not really going to be happy for her. <laughs> like, why would he be happy for her? Um, this is not a good marriage. So, but he's also wrong. He says, look, there is a third option. He says, look, you can go to Westeros. They'll welcome you there. That's where you belong. Okay. No, sorry, Barrison, that's not true. They're not going to welcome her there. I really don't think so. They're going to welcome young Griff, I think. They're going to cheer him. That's who he's thinking of, though he doesn't know it yet. There's just so many reasons for her coalition to be seen in a dim light. Like, Westeros is xenophobic. Westeros doesn't like women rulers. Westeros is not going to be thrilled with dragons either. And Dothraki, all these other things, they're just going to look down on her for that, for bringing slaves over, even though she freed them. That's just, They just don't like that. It's just... It's unfortunate, but that is where we, a lot of us think things are going. So Barrison is just, it's his own version of wishful thinking. It's similar to, almost similar to what, what Griff and young Griff expect from Westeros. Like, oh, they'll rise for their king. Well, they will, but there's other things that they're not factoring in. And Barrison is doing, making that same mistake here. Uh, so, and of course, Barrison is also forgetting um, or ignoring what a lurch Mirene will be left in if she leaves without settling things. Also, the Tar- Targaryen marriages that Barrison brings up. This is pretty important. I got a few notes from Nina on this. Well done here. A few historical notes from Rhaegar and Elia and Ares and Rhaella. Both of these marriages were meant to, uh, were means rather, to prophetic ends for Jaehaerys II, who was the one visited by the ghost of High Heart, meaning. Jenny of Oldstones' friend, <laughs> who she called a, a woods witch who thought she was a child of the forest. Now, you can see echoes of them taking some risks back then. Jaehaerys ordered his children, Ares and Rayella, to marry because he was concerned about the prince that was promised. Now, there was no compelling political reason to have his kids marry so young. Normally, you don't, even in this timeline, you don't have kids get married so young because even they have some awareness of teenage pregnancies being dangerous. Usually you wait when you can. You, you, these 13-year-old marriages that result in children are usually, uh, are often either because these Targaryens are so close to each other early on <laughs> to begin with, they're expected to marry right away, or they're not done this early. They're what you wait till they're older so that there's, not as much risk. So when they happen young like this, there's some compelling reason. It's usually dynastic or political, but here it's supernatural. 
Here, Ares and Rayella's marriage was about the prince that was promised this uh, prophecy being told to their father. And this is passed on down to uh, the later generations. Ray, uh, Ares's son, Rhaegar, born at Summerhall. Yeah, that's passing it on. And now Daenerys is sort of the inheritor of that situation, for lack of a better word, that because, well, she probably is the princess that was promised. So she probably is the, the result, the, the culmination of these predictions, these prophecies that her prior family member, her ancestors got wrong. Like Rhaegar might have actually loved Elia, but if he was so focused on saving the world, you know, how's he going to have good thoughts? How's he going to have a normal life when he thinks his job is to save the world? Now, imagine if Daenerys feels, is, is sold that idea. What if Daenerys gets the idea that it's her job to save the world? She doesn't have that opinion right now. She hasn't come to terms with what most of us readers seem to believe, which is that she has this burden on her shoulders to do the lion's share, the dragon's share, or a huge portion, if not more than half, of the work in saving the world. She has not yet begun to feel that burden. The burden of Marine is monstrous but it's nothing compared to saving the whole world. And she hasn't begun to feel that pressure yet. As much as I talk about, well, what would power do to young Griff? What is, what is a boy who's never wielded great power, what's that going to do to his psyche? What is this going to do to Daenerys? Finding out that lots of people, thousands of people, true or not, think of her as the savior of the world. Because perception is reality for these people. Whether or not it's true that she's the prophesied savior of the world, she's going to be hearing it from thousands and thousands of voices who believe it to be true. And that's got a lot of meaning whether it's actually true. So this kind of burden placed on her that's coming is something that we have to be very aware of, something monstrous that she hasn't begun to perceive yet. It's, it's, it's a large... It's a top reason I think Daenerys' personality could change a lot. The, the kind of things that we're looking for that might shift her towards a darker arc, towards being less compassionate, towards her being more destructive, might be in part related to this unbelievably huge burden that could be put on her. All throughout this episode, we talked about how many people are convincing, how many people that convinced her successfully. Danny, not just Danny, but all these other characters in these other chapters. Again, convincing has been a theme today. One of the few examples where the convincing didn't work was with Dario, with this whole red wedding of Marine thing. Joe points out the great introduction, reintroduction we get to him. They meet on the terrace under the moon and stars with that swaggering, that great description of how Dario seems to swagger even when he's standing still. It really, it's a really clever way to show Danny's attraction to him. Like, she's really into everything about this guy, even while she recognizes how bad it is for <laughs> how he has that. There's so many negative things about him, how he's dark and brutal and murderous, even though he's super flattering and clearly her ally and dependable in some ways and definitely better to have on her side than be an enemy, all these other things. And he's just, and just constantly she's, battling herself, like her attraction to him is, is peaking big time. And he knows it. He knows it. He senses it in her. He sees it in her body language. Also, he's just really cocky. He's kind of, he's probably the kind of guy that thinks all women want him anyway. So <laughs> he's already right there. And 
he tells what's going on. He tells his story about going to the Lazarine and, and setting that all up. And then we hear about this story of recruiting some of the long lances. And that takes us back to, well, it doesn't take us back to, it actually takes us forward. This chapter we're going to read next week, The Windblown, is when the Dornishmen are told by the Tattered Prince to switch sides, which is what they were planning on doing anyway. So it's obviously pretty funny that they get ordered to do the sneaky thing they were planning on doing without orders. And this is what we're seeing here. Dario recruited some of the Long Lances. The Long Lances are the company that Quentin and Garrus and Ironwood, uh, Archibald, went over to. So that's pretty funny. That is what we're seeing. Again, George gives us the results before he gives us the setup, similar to giving us the answer before he gives us the question. Also, <laughs> it's a little bit of setup, as Joe points out, for Dario kind of missing. Like, he doesn't catch this. He's like, oh, yeah, I, I analyzed them. I talked to them. I could get a sense of who they really were. Whoops. <laughs> Wrong. And Danny also steers as, as another way of steering the conversation away from her attraction to him. She talks about the war and how they can deal with being surrounded by so many foes. And this is when we get to the Red Wedding suggestion. Adara's like, look, bring them all together, give them a false pretense, then kill them. And she's like, wow, that's brutal, man. We can't do that. Well, this is part of what the evidence for her to see what he's really like, the kind of man he really is. But you kind of, I kind of don't hate the advice. I mean, I think she's going to end up killing all these people anyway. I think that she maybe is being too nice to some of these guys. They're slavers. I don't think they can be rehabilitated. Dario maybe isn't the best man to give this message, but I really don't know that there's a way around this. I really don't think there's a way other than just decapitating a lot of these slaver families permanently. Because I think as soon as she's gone, they're going to try to restart it all. I don't know that there's any way other than through blood to get this dealt with. So, you know, and I'm not a guy who suggests violence lightly in the real world or in fiction. I mean, this is fiction, so it really doesn't mean anything that I suggest violence. But I think it's, if it were a real situation, I, I don't know what would be done either. And as Nina writes very astutely, the issue with Dario isn't that he's wrong in pointing out her problems, but that he represents the opposite extreme to his Darren Galaza. She doesn't want to become the bad guy. She doesn't want to kill bad guys in a way that makes her the bad guy. She still has to compromise. She still has to do things the right way, lest she fall down that slippery slope and simply resort to butchery in other situations in the future. It, it's too easy to kill when you get used to killing, right? So she has to restrain herself lest it become too easy, lest it become too simple, too common. Quick update on the dragons. We get a quick update there. It's not good. Drogon roaming around the Dothraki Sea every once in a while. We hear about that, but there's reports aren't very tangible. But the dragons contained down in the dark. They're just getting more and more, they're acting out more, breathing fire on the pit doors, breaking their chains, things like that. Great tension, kind of sad. Think of that scene in, on TV where there's a sad music playing as Danny locks her dragons up. Yep, her children are down there struggling. They hate it. They're locked up in chains. Like, yeah, she thinks it herself. What kind of mother locks her children up like that? Well, you know, it's when your children are 
a threat to other children, I guess. What do you do? Okay, so let's end, uh, let's wrap up today with a real quick rundown of a little bit more evidence of why Galaza Galari is the green grace. It is something that's pretty well accepted amongst the fandom in our Facebook group. It was by far the, the popular choice. No one even really suggested other options. I think maybe five years ago, there was a lot more debate, but I think over time, the evidence is really solidified. The analysis keeps, keeps pointing in the same direction. So I'm going to read this take from Nina. She says, Galaza Galari is 100% the harpy. To start, I think it's clear that the Sons of the Harpy is a very organized terrorist group. The violence of the Sons is not random. They are specifically targeting freedmen, shave pates, and at least initially unsullied until Danny, you know, pulls them out of the city. The murders are carefully planned events operating on knowledge the Sons of the Harpy had to have gathered before the actual killing and are also both expansive and well-coordinated. The stream of murders is well-controlled, able to be increased or turned off completely within the span of a single day. All of this suggests that there is leadership within the Sons of the Harpy directing their actions. Someone needs to be in charge or you would have a variety of results. You would have things unconnected, but it all just seems so coordinated, so controlled. The Sons of the Harpy as a group has a very specific political goal. The return of slaveholding. It's very straightforward. Marine is ruled by elite slaving families. Every single powerful family in Marine is a slaving family. There are no exceptions. With Daenerys in charge, there are only two options for the sons. Either get her to leave or get her to enable slaving again. Those are the only two options because it's all pointed towards this single solitary goal. Since to this point, she has refused to leave then killing her has been not an option. She's too well protected to this point. They would take that chance if they got it, but to this point, they haven't. So instead, the next best thing is to convince her to restore some elements of slavery and then maybe kind of gradually re-increase it or maybe an opportunity to get rid of her comes later and then they go the rest of the way. They have a lot of, they have a lot of, options here, but they, it's all geared towards the same end state. All these, all this evidence, we see con all these things, all the evidence of this coordination, the person who's always the spokesman, the person who seems to have control over this, the one who seems to understand everything, the one who seems to have all the information is Galaza Galari. And there just, there aren't a lot of other options. Like his star is just too soft. He just, I just don't think it could be him. He's just too weak. He's, I, I don't see it. Shave the shave paint? No way. That guy is clearly on the opposite side of things. He might be the guy that poisoned the locusts. I'm amenable to that sort of conspiracy from him, to forcing her hand, to making things more bloody. But him being the harpy, no, no way. That does not work. He's diametrically opposed to that faction. I just can't see that. So she's the high priestess. Again, she's the, of the most important temple. She's... A female figure when the harpy is also a woman. Harpies are always female. There's no male harpies. So that's kind of symbolically on point. It isn't necessarily evidence. It just fits nicely. Let's put all that together. There isn't any one thing that says she's the, the harpy. But lack of options, her displays of power, her insider information, her being the one to push his dar, her, her seemingly... In, in control of his dar, like showing authority over him. And the fact that through his dar's marriage, the, the murders do stop. Like all of a sudden, 
it all just sets the table really well to point at her. I wonder if Danny will notice. I wonder if she'll figure it out. I wonder if Tyrion will come along and, and pick up all these clothes and be like, yo, it's clearly her. <laughs> and, if he'll, and he, being as clever as he is, might come up with ways to prove it, to, to out her. Maybe kind of the same way he outed Pycelle and Littlefinger when he gave a different message to Varys, Littlefinger, and Pycelle, and then watched to see how they reacted. Only Varys didn't out himself with that. Varys was smart enough to, to not fall for that, or at least he kept him, he, he was cautious enough to not get trapped in that. But Littlefinger and Pycelle both took the bait, especially Pycelle. Pycelle's one who really came out looking bad there. So that's the kind of thing that Tyrion could do. He could give information, he could feed information to someone, false information to someone, and then see where it pops back up. And that gives him a sense of who is feeding information to who. Definitely see the room for how Tyrion could use his awfulness to good use here is his amazing cunning skill. Some of this is awful. Some of it is just intelligence. But that's the thing with intelligence. Intelligence is neutral. A good person, a good person using their intelligence for good has great things happen. A good person, a bad person using their intelligence, well, you get Tyrion manipulating Aegon into a bad strategy. Mm-hmm. As a few of you have expressed, the hopelessness in Marine is similar to the hopelessness in the North. There's just no way to save so many people from slavery without an awful lot of death and suffering. Ditto Winter and the others. There is no chance of defeating them before they can do, as yet, untold harm. Dornish Dame, with our last comment of the day, I feel like in the Winds of Winter, Danny and John are going to clear out the people they've been forced to work with in A Dance with Dragons who have tried to go against their attempts to work with the free folk and end slavery. John's getting rid of Martian Company when he comes back, and Danny's going to get rid of a lot of the slavers who've been giving her bad advice, manipulating her into restoring slavery. Just as John, just as Marsh is trying to bring back the old ways that aren't working anymore. Yeah, that's a good parallel. I agree with that a lot. And we should always be wary wary on the lookout for par parallels between John and Danny because they are very similar characters on a crash course towards each other. It is very well set up. I love to catch these parallels. There's so many of them. Part of why this is great as a group effort. Y'all are really good at picking these out and I hope you like the ones that we picked out as well. Last week, we covered 154 minutes, 18 seconds. This week, almost the same. 153.21, 57 seconds different only. So that is 31 and a half, 31.6% of the book. We're heading along, we're moving along quite swimmingly. So we are a little under a third of the way, which makes sense. Six out of 19, six out of 18 would be a third of the way, but you know, six doesn't divide into 19. So evenly, as usual, check out the video length compared to the podcast version. If you're curious to see how much gets edited out. Usually it's about 15, 20 minutes, something like that, of me stumbling over my words or pausing or cats jumping on the keyboard, things like that. <laughs> Those kind of things get removed. And also, anytime I talk about stuff that's on the wall or anytime I talk about things that you can see, I cut that out of the, uh, of the podcast too because like you're not able to look at what I'm pointing at. So, hmm. As usual, we end with a quick rundown of episodes that we've done in the past that expand on topics we discussed today. We discussed the Great Empire of the Dawn a little bit vis-a-vis -vis the oily black stone as it might pertain to Moat Kalen. Of course, we mentioned the Lies and Arbor Gold episode in reference to the Pisswater Prince anecdote. Aegon and Arbor Gold are connected. Lots more stories and evidence that Lies and Arbor Gold means what we say. 
in that episode. And of course, I also mentioned the upcoming Giants episodes with Amanda, a.k.a. Crow Food's daughter of the Disputed Lands podcast, which will include a dive on Brandon, the builder, which is when we will get to talk a little more about Moat Kalen and a lot of other ancient, interesting, mysterious structures throughout Westeros that Brandon the Builder and or Giants may have been involved. Can I say... Of course. You've used the word rundown many times in this episode. I think <laughs> Charles Minor from The Office would love you and Jim Halpert would really have some questions. What, what is a, a rundown? What is a rundown exactly? Uh, yep. I'm, I'm as hard as working that rundown as I should be. Like, no reason to work too hard, is it? Oh, no, I'm... Uh, uh. <laughs> Jim can't win with Charles Minor. <laughs> Next time. Things will be slightly different the next two weeks because we have back-to-back three-chapter weeks instead of the usual four. The reason for that is the two longest chapters in the entire book happen to be back-to-back, one following the other. So I didn't want to tackle them both in the same week because that would push us towards an, an uber-long episode and better to bite off this, this book in more manageable chunks. We already take large bites per episode. No reason to make that any bigger. Also, interestingly, it's a batch of POVs that have their own names, a batch of POVs that we don't see a lot of. Mostly they're new. Starting with The Lost Lord. The gang meets the Golden Company, a.k.a. Sail West, young Griff. The Windblown. The gang meets the Tattered Prince, a.k.a. Dornish Spies Like Us. And the Wayward Bride, Asha Greyjoy versus Middle Little, a.k.a. the one where Stannis ambushes the Ironborn again. That is the second longest chapter in the book, the longest being Kyrian 7, which we'll tackle two weeks from now as the first chapter of the second in a row, three chapter week. Then we'll be back to four chapters a week, I think for the rest of the way, but I'm not 100% sure on that. Either way, lots more to go. Thanks for coming again, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you're catching this after the fact, thanks to Ashea for managing so much at once during the stream and offline. Thanks to Joe Buckley and Nina Friel for their invaluable contributions to the writing. Please check out their work. That's the Scraps and Scrolls editions of Isle of Faces podcast, as well as all the other episodes of Isle of Faces. And Nina Friel, once again, is at goodqueenalley.tumblr.com. That's with one L. Thanks to our mods on History of Westeros Facebook group for posting the chapters each week and leading the discussion. Thanks to all our regulars there on Facebook as well and to our regulars on Flick, Slack, and Discord for all the great discussions about these chapters and other things. Thanks to Claradox, Michael Klarfeld's site. We've mentioned it a few times this episode. As usual, you can see it right behind me. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for the Val Arbor Regis music. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for History of Westeros' regular intro-outro music. Thanks to our Benjineer for making our sound quality much better than it would otherwise be. Thanks to our patrons for keeping us financially supported and feeling very loved. And as usual, we end with a suggestion to go check out Here Be Dragons today. They are covering The Expanse, doing a character study on Naomi Nagata. Hell yeah. And uh, we just rewatched the first half of season four last night, actually. Yeah, we've got a roommate who hasn't seen that season yet, so we were... uh watching it with him, living vicariously the second time through, or third and, time through, really. And while the power was out, I did a nice read uh, through again of five, six, seven, and eight. Yeah. Uh, they're my favorite sci-fi book series. So if you haven't read it or seen it, 
please do. Yeah, it comes check back, it out. Uh, December 16th, I believe. So very good. And a lot of a Song of Ice and Fire people that we've turned on to it would agree. Lots of other people are advocates for the series. And there's a good reason why. Anyway, we will see you all next time. Next week at the same usual... Uh, same time, same <laughs> channel, same everything, except for new chapters. <laughs> so thanks again, everyone. We'll see you then. Until then, Valar, re-read us.